Simon and Schuster Audio presents Sky Song by Abby Elphinstone, read by Nikki Diss. Prologue. Beyond the footsteps of the greatest explorers and up past the reach of the trustiest maps, there lies a kingdom called Erkenwald. Here the sun still shines at midnight in the summer, glinting off the icebergs in the north and slipping between the snow-capped nevercliffs in the west. But it does not rise at all in the long, cold winters. Then the nights bleed on and on, and the darkness is so thick you cannot see your hands in front of your face. This far north, even the stars do not behave as you might expect. And that is probably just as well, because without Ursa Minor breaking a few rules, we would not have a story at all. The Little Bear, some call this constellation, but if astronomers knew the truth, if they could see into the heart of things and out the other side, perhaps they would have used a different name. For these seven stars are in fact sky gods, mighty giants carved from stardust, and the brightest of them all, the North Star, was the one who first breathed life into Erkenwald. Such was his power that he only needed to blow the legendary frost horn once and the empty stretches of ice many miles below began to change. Mountains, forests and glaciers appeared. Then animals arrived, polar bears to roam the tundra, whales to glide through the oceans and wolves to stalk between the trees. Finally, the music of the Frosthorn conjured people, men and women of different shapes, sizes and colours scattered through the land. As the years passed, these men and women formed three tribes. The Fir Tribe built teepees from caribou hides in a forest to the south of the kingdom. The Feather Tribe settled inside caves in the Nevercliffs to the west. And the Tusk Tribe built igloos along the clifftops on the northern coast. Each tribe had their own customs and beliefs, but they lived in harmony with one another, sharing food whenever they passed and offering shelter when the weather closed in. Because magic often lingers long after it has been used, the power of the frost horn hovered over Erkenwald, and as time went by, the people learned how to use it. They spun hammocks from moonlight which granted wonderful dreams, they trapped sunbeams in lanterns which burned through the winter months. They stored wind inside gemstones which granted their boats safe passage through stormy seas. And the people knew all was well in their kingdom whenever they saw the northern lights, for these rippling colours were a sign that the sky gods were dancing, and that meant the world was as it should be. But darkness can come to any kingdom, and so it came to Erkenwald. The smallest sky god grew jealous of the North Star's power, and seeking to rule Erkenwald herself, she pulled away from the constellation one winter night and plunged towards Earth. The North Star acted swiftly and trapped her in a glacier before she could spread her evil across the land. But the sky gods stopped dancing then, because they knew that it was only a matter of time before someone heard the whispers of the fallen star calling out behind the ice. And before long, someone did. 
One night, Slither, the shaman for the Tusk tribe, was drawn to the glacier, and he listened as the voice within promised him dark powers if he killed his chief and made it look like a plot brewed by the fur and feather tribes using Erkenwald's trusted magic. Although the words were only whispers, they plucked at Slither's heart, and believing all they said, the shaman slew the Tusk chief while he slept with an enchanted knife. In the weeks that followed, distrust between the tribes gave way to hatred, and faith in Erkenwald's magic died. And it was then that Slither climbed back into his skin boat and paddled between the cliffs towards the glacier. The voice was still there, only it was louder now, as if the hatred between the tribes had given it fresh force, and this time Slither could make out the body of a woman behind the ice. She was tall and slim, with skin as white as marble and lips a cold, pale blue. Her eyelashes were crusted with frost, her silver hair twisted through a crown of snowflakes, and in her hand she held a staff of glittering black ice. Slither raised a palm towards the Ice Queen, and, because this was a palm that had done a terrible thing, it melted the frozen wall before him, and the woman stepped out from the glacier and into the skin boat. She held up her staff, and thunder rumbled across the sky, as every man, woman and child in the Tusk tribe, now locked under the Ice Queen's hold, stepped out of their igloos. They watched in silence as she pointed her staff towards the glacier she had been trapped inside. An enormous chunk of ice broke free from its tip and slid into the sea, but it did not drift away. The Ice Queen waved her staff and a bridge snaked out between the cliff and the iceberg, tethering it in place. Then domes, turrets and towers formed, shooting out of the iceberg with ear-splitting cracks until finally... There stood a shimmering fortress carved entirely from ice. Winterfang Palace was born. The reign of the Ice Queen had begun. And to reward his loyalty, the Ice Queen gave Slither command of the Tusk tribe and taught him how to wield the very darkest magic. Spring came. Then slipped into summer, and from afar, the fur and feather tribes watched as the tusks left their igloos every morning and walked across the bridge into Winterfang Palace. A battle was brewing. The fur and feather tribes could hear the sharpening of spears and hammering of shields, and fearing that the Ice Queen meant to drag all the tribes under her command, they launched an attack on Winterfang. But to fight for something you believe in, requires trust as well as courage, and there was not enough trust between the fur and feather tribes that day. There was no faith in Erkenwald's magic either, and the weapons of even the most skilled fighters were nothing against Slither's tusk warriors. They fought with black ice javelins and shadow shields, and soon every man and woman from the fur and feather tribes was imprisoned in the palace towers. Slither's warriors seized a child too, the only one who had been granted a place in the battle, because this was a child marked out by the sky gods, a child that the Ice Queen had been looking for ever since she fell from the sky. 
The other children remained beyond the Ice Queen's grasp, and though Slither's warriors scoured the kingdom all through the summer and on into the winter, they found no trace of them. Erkenwald became a land shrunk to whispers, but because a fallen star can only survive one midnight sun on Earth before its magic fades, the Ice Queen set about finding a way to gain immortality. Voices, she discovered, were the key, and if she could swallow the voice of every man, woman and child in Erkenwald before the next midnight sun rose, she would possess the eternal life she craved. By midwinter, a new sound rang out from Winterfang. An anthem played on an organ made of icicles, accompanied by a choir of voices that once belonged to the Ice Queen's prisoners. The anthem called some children out of hiding, so desperate were they to be reunited with their parents whose voices they could hear above the music, but most knew better than that. They realised that the stolen voices were a trap, and they vowed to lie low until they could form a plan to defeat the Ice Queen and rescue their parents. But some people are not very good at lying low. They have wandering limbs and fierce hearts, and more often than not, they have heads full of wild ideas. Our story follows two such children, an unlikely pair, some would say, but you cannot pick and choose who adventures happen to. They pounce when you are least expecting them, then they hurtle forward with surprising speed. In fact, once an adventure digs its claws in, there is not an awful lot you can do about it, especially when magic is involved. Chapter One Eska Eska sat, knees tucked under her chin and head bowed, on the pedestal inside the music box. Its glass dome curved around her, fixed tight to the silver base, and with her flimsy dress and bare feet, she might easily have passed for a mechanical ballerina. But Eska was no clockwork figure. She was a twelve-year-old girl with darting eyes and a pulse that trembled every time the Ice Queen drew near. Eska closed her eyes and tried to wiggle her toes. They didn't move. She made to arch her back and then stretch her neck. Again, nothing moved. Even her hair, a tumble of red so full of knots it seemed to grow in circles, lay absolutely still down her back. But it was a ritual she attempted every morning, in case, by some miracle, the Ice Queen's hold over her limbs had weakened. It never did, though, not for a second. The music box had been Eska's prison for months, and she could only blink wide blue eyes at the horrors that unfolded in Winterfang's vaulted hall. She looked beyond the dome, through the ice arches in front of her which faced out over Erkenwald. The first sunrise in six months spilled across the horizon. Frozen rivers shimmered, the snow on the tundra sparkled, and the sea was a dazzling jigsaw of ice and meltwater. It was mid-March then, Eska thought. That was when the light returned to the kingdom. She'd heard the Tusk guards talking. Her chest tightened as she thought back to the day she'd awoken in the music box, her body locked under the Ice Queen's spell. 
The midnight sun had been burning and she had watched it for two whole months before the dark stole in. Esker swallowed. With the light returning now, she knew she had to have been the Ice Queen's prisoner for nine months, but even more frightening was the knowledge that she didn't have a single memory of her life before Winterfang. There must have been something else once, a home, a family, friends perhaps. Since the spell the Ice Queen uttered every morning spoke of her as the stolen child. But stolen from where? From whom? It was all a terrible blank. Because the Ice Queen didn't only steal people and voices, she stole memories too, if it suited her. At the sound of footsteps, Eska snapped out of her thoughts, and from the corner of her eye, she watched a familiar scene unravel. The Ice Queen sat very still before an organ made of icicles in the middle of the hall. Then she raised her hands to the keys. Eska waited. She knew what came next, because it was the same every morning. Chords drifted through the palace, up and down the snow-strewn staircases, into the towers surrounding the palace domes, across the bridge connecting the iceberg to the mainland, and then out over the miles of frozen tundra beyond. The chords were solemn, like the groaning of a faraway glacier, and as they swelled and throbbed, Esker winced. The Ice Queen was getting ready to feed on her stolen voices. A melody rippled out from the silver trees lining the hall. Their roots sprawled over the ice floor, and from their bony branches hundreds of glass baubles hung, each one filled with a golden glow. This was where the melody was coming from, because inside each bauble was a voice. And as the chords grew louder, the baubles shimmered, and the voices of the fur and feather men and women singing a wordless anthem joined with the organ's steady pulse. Eska watched as the golden glow from one of the baubles drifted towards the Ice Queen's mouth and slipped down her cold white throat. The organ grew louder as the Ice Queen swallowed. Then she threw back her head and laughed. Another voice closer to immortality. She raked her nails across the keys. The chords clashed, the voices stopped, and the baubles dimmed. Then the Ice Queen snatched up her staff and strode towards the arches, her sequined gown swishing behind her. Eska's insides churned as the woman knelt before the music box and slipped a key into the bass. Then she uttered her spell, and her voice came hard and pointed, as if full of unpleasant corners. Three turns to the left, then half a turn right, with a key cut black as the deepest night. The magic awakes, then limbs unfold, as the stolen child comes under my hold. The Ice Queen turned the key, and as it wound three turns to the left, then half a turn right, music began. It was different from the melody that came from the trees. This was a gentle, almost magical tinkling, like tiny bells chiming, or dozens of stars falling to earth. And at the sound, Eska felt her body stir. 
First her head lifted, then her hands pushed down and her legs extended until she was standing on the pedestal. She tried to hold the curse at bay, to take control of her body, but she was up on the balls of her feet now and her arms were outstretched. The Ice Queen breathed a crystal mist over the glass dome, making it disappear from sight, and as the pedestal turned round and round, Esker danced on trembling feet. Unscrewing the orb from the top of her staff, the Ice Queen held it before Esker. Your voice is cursed by the Sky Gods, child, but I can relieve you of it. She moved the orb nearer Esker's mouth. Speak now. Let your words slip into my orb, and you will no longer have to bear such a burden. Esker's frail arms rose and fell, and her body stooped and arched, but she said nothing. Minutes passed, the only sound in the room the fluttering of Esker's dress as she turned. Then the music ground to a halt, the pedestal stilled, and Esker stopped mid-pirouette before folding herself up into a ball again. The Ice Queen twisted the orb back onto her staff, then she seized Esker's wrist. I am not asking to hear your voice because I value your opinion. I am not asking to hear your voice because I care about your feelings. I am asking to hear your voice because I own you. Her eyes darkened. You bear the mark of the sky gods, Esker, the very gods who used terrible magic to stir up hatred between the people of Erkenwald. But I will use your voice to tear the sky gods down and rid this kingdom of their evil forever. Esker's mind whirled. The Ice Queen often spoke like this, about cursed marks and dreadful gods, but even though Esker could recall nothing from her past about either, some deep-rooted things couldn't be erased, like knowing right from wrong and sensing truth from lies. Something about the Ice Queen's words smelled of lies, as if she was spinning a story that just happened to suit her. And for this reason, Esker kept her voice a secret inside her. The Ice Queen loosened her grip. You will remain locked inside this music box until I hear you speak, she paused. And you will go without the dome tonight. Perhaps a little cold is exactly what is needed to shock you into behaving. Esker stayed silent, huddled on her pedestal. Then there was a cough from somewhere nearby, and the Ice Queen spun round. A bald man dressed in sealskins and a walrus tusk necklace stood before them. He was small and fat, with an oily smile, and as he dipped his head, Esker glimpsed the edge of the tattoo of a large black eye stamped onto the back of his skull. Forgive my intrusion, your majesty. The Ice Queen nodded. Come, Slither, it seems I am still not getting through to the girl. My magic holds her body under its spell, but it cannot draw out her voice. She is mute, and perhaps she has always been that way, but somewhere inside her there must be a voice, even if she has never used it. I have some news that may interest you, 
Slither smirked. The contraption I have been working on these last few months is almost finished. The Ice Queen paced back and forth beside the music box, a smile forming on her blue lips. You're quite sure it will work? Slither ran a hand over his bald head. I am the most powerful shaman in Erkenwald. It will work. We cannot delay any longer. I must have Esker's voice in the next few days. There are still adjustments to make. I need at least a week before... The Ice Queen tilted her head and the sunlight flashed off her crown of snowflakes. Work through the night, Slither. Get it done. To achieve immortality, I must steal every single voice in the kingdom before the midnight sun rises in two weeks' time. She paused. Even your fiercest warriors have not been able to find the fur and feather children, but if I have Esker's voice, I can use it to summon the tribes to Winterfang. Then I will tear the sky gods down from the heavens, and all will surrender to me. Slither bowed and then scurried from the hall. The Ice Queen followed slowly, but when she reached the shadows, she glanced over her shoulder at Esker. I will take your voice, she snarled. I get everything I want in the end. Esker stayed with her head bent over her knees until the last of the Ice Queen's footsteps faded away. Then her eyes flicked open and fixed on the key. Distracted by Slither, the Ice Queen had left it in the lock. Esker remembered how the woman had turned it the wrong way by mistake one day and it had undone the spell over her body for a moment. If only she could reach it now. But Esker's limbs were frozen. There was no chance of escaping, and she could only gaze through the arches at the world beyond, wondering who she really was. A child cursed by the sky gods, or somebody else entirely. A cold wind swept through the hall, and Esker blinked at the chill. The Ice Queen held her body in a music box and her memories in a locked chest somewhere deep within the palace, it was almost enough to make Esker give up hope of ever finding a way back into her past. Almost, but not quite. Because Esker knew something the Ice Queen did not. She could speak. She just didn't want to. Chapter 2 Flint Flint raced across the Driftlands on a sled pulled by huskies. The dogs strained against their harnesses as they bounded forward, but they did not yap or bark. They ran silently, as if they could sense the boys' fear, and only the runners skimming the tundra could be heard. Standing upright at the back of the sled, his boots astride on the caribou antlers and his scruff of brown hair flapping about his face, Flint used the moonlight to guide him. Round hillocks of ice, down dips in the snowfall, on and on towards Winterfang Palace. It was a cold night, and Flint's breath froze in little crystals on the lynx fur trim of his parka. But despite the chill, he didn't have his hood pulled up, because that would have meant dislodging the fox pup snuggled inside. Look, Pebble, 
Flint whispered. It's Winterfang. There's no turning back now. There was a shuffle of white fur from inside Flint's hood. Then two black eyes emerged. Pebble blinked. They were rushing along the coast now, and to their right the snowy cliffs plunged down to the sea. In a few weeks they'd see beluga whales gliding between icebergs and walruses resting on the shores. But for now, the sea was still mostly frozen, and further up the coast a jumble of domes and towers burst out of the Ice Queen's enchanted iceberg. Pebble nibbled at Flint's bear-claw earring, the fox pup was used to the trespassing, mishaps and tellings off that came with belonging to Flint, but he was always well fed throughout each ordeal, which meant the ongoing peril was usually worth the trouble. Flint tapped Pebble's nose. Now is not the time to be asking for extra food. We've got a handful of tusk guards to get past, a palace to break into, and my ma to free. He paused. Put like that, the evening sounded rather intense. But then he thought about the items stashed inside his rucksack and the months he'd spent planning in his treehouse, and he felt his courage return. Besides, he continued, I fed you back at Deep Roots, and you had seconds of lemmings, if I remember correctly. Pebble grunted, then turned round and stuck out his bushy tail until it was smothering Flint's face. Flint pushed it away, and reluctantly Pebble got the message and manoeuvred his bottom back inside the hood. They sped on. The guards will be celebrating long into the night, just like they did last year when the first sun rose after winter. Flint paused as the sled bumped over a shelf of ice. If ever there was a moment to sneak into the palace, it's tonight when they're distracted. But despite the nights Flint had spent spying on the palace and preparing for the break-in, there was a tremble in his voice and his eyes flitted with nerves, because Flint knew the stories of the Ice Queen as well as anyone else. She could kill a person just by holding up her staff, or so people said, and no one hiding in Deep Roots Forest or the Nevercliffs could miss the sounds that drifted out from Winterfang every morning. The Ice Queen's organ first... Then the haunting chorus of voices, the mothers, fathers, uncles, aunts and grandparents of the hidden children, locked inside the palace. They could drive you mad, those voices, and now anyone who heard them raised their hands to cover their ears. The sled raced on, and the palace drew nearer. Flint swallowed as he took in the jungle of gigantic icicles surrounding the base of each of the five towers rumoured to hold the Ice Queen's prisoners. They cast a web of sprawling shadows over the moonlit tundra, and for a moment Flint's mittens slackened their grip on the sled. He thought about his ma, trapped inside, and focused on the main palace wall. He'd climb in that way, then sneak through the passageways to the towers from there. Flint reached back and tickled Pebble's chin as the dogs approached a bank of snow that blocked the palace from sight. Tomkin might have shouted down my talk of a rescue mission because he doesn't think I'm ready to be a proper warrior or that my inventions are up to the job. But when I return to Deep Roots with Ma, my brother will soon see what I'm capable of. Flint wasn't proud of the fact that he'd lied to his brother. He'd promised Tomkin he'd destroyed all of his inventions back in his treehouse, because as Tomkin always said, 
A fur tribe warrior fights with spears and fists, not with magic and far-fetched contraptions. But the truth was, Flint couldn't shut his thoughts away. Ever since he was a little boy, he'd been inventing things, and now, no matter how hard he tried to stop his ideas, they kept happening, kept growing, kept changing into extraordinary possibilities. Because unlike his brother and everyone else in his tribe, Flint still trusted Erkenwald's magic. This was partly because of the piece of bark he'd found in the forest over the summer, which bore carvings that talked of how to harness magic and use it for good. But also because his mind was attuned to the things most people missed. River stones that shone in the dark, sunbeams tucked behind trees, coils of mist hovering above puddles. Flint was sure that if handled correctly, Erkenwald's magic could be stronger than a warrior's spear. He steered his sled into a hollow in the bank that spread out into a hidden passageway winding down to the sea. The dogs raced into the darkness until eventually the ground levelled out into an ice cavern and moonlight sparkled against the icicles fringing the way out. Flint tethered the panting animals and placed a finger to his lips. I'll be back soon, he told the dogs as he swung his rucksack onto his shoulder. Probably. One of the dogs whined and Flint reached into a bag on the sled and pulled out the frozen rabbit meat inside. He tossed it to the dogs and they chewed hungrily. Then, with Pebble peeping out from his hood, Flint turned from the cavern and crept towards the palace. The fortress glinted in the moonlight, and as Flint slipped beneath the bridge that connected the iceberg to the clifftop on the mainland, his sealskin boots practically soundless against the ice, he realised he had been holding his breath for almost a minute. He breathed out. Immediately, his body stiffened. Voices. A cluster of tusk guards were chattering on the bridge above him, and as Flint listened, he heard mugs clinking together and a fire crackling. He didn't need to look to know they'd be clad in the armour the Ice Queen had sculpted for them, breastplates of ice and helmets forked with walrus tusks. Heart skittering, Flint stole on, using the shadow of the bridge to hide him. He paused at the foot of the palace to strap a pair of crampons to his boots. Then he swallowed as he took in the glinting base of ice that he needed to climb before he got to the arches opening up into Winterfang. Pebble shivered behind him. They would be in full view of the guards on that ice face, an easy target for one of their spears. But Flint had thought this through. He knew exactly what was needed to create a diversion. He lifted a whistle carved from Jerfalcon bone out of his rucksack and checked for the handful of snowy owl feathers wedged inside. He breathed a sigh of relief. The feathers were still there, and that was just as well, because his whole invention hinged on them. Gathered under a full moon out on the tundra, then dipped in rainwater collected before it touched the ground, the feathers had magical properties, if Erkenwald's magic was to be believed. Flint clasped the whistle and blew. No sound came out. The feathers muffled it, but eventually they eased out of the whistle and fluttered silently into the sky. 
Pebble's eyes grew large and Flint bit his lip as they watched the feathers float eerily above the bridge and trail quite some distance across the tundra. Then, when the feathers were a long way away, Flint's whistle sounded. The guards leapt up and began shouting. Flint grinned. His invention had worked. The feathers had carried the sound of his whistle, only releasing the blast when it was a safe enough distance from him. The tusks rushed down the bridge and away from the palace towards the noise, while Flint hauled a bundle of rope from his rucksack. This was the diversion he'd wanted, but he would have to be quick. He hurled the end of the rope, tipped with a barbed hook, up against the ice, and it held fast. Then he tightened the drawstring around his hood to secure Pebble in place, set his crampons to the wall, and climbed up towards the arches. Once or twice his boots skidded down the ice, but Flint kept on going, every now and again throwing a glance behind him to check that the guards were still out on the tundra. Eventually, Flint came to the arches. He crouched just below them, panting, and Pebble gave a little moan as he peered over the edge of Flint's hood. They were closer to the palace than they'd ever been, just moments away from breaking in, and as Flint thought of his ma and all the nights he'd spent missing her in the forest, he hoisted himself up into the arch and froze. There was a face looking up at him, but it did not boast a crown of snowflakes which the Ice Queen was rumoured to wear. This face belonged to a thin, pale girl, hunched on a pedestal, and it held eyes full of longing. Help me! The girl's voice was a scratched whisper, as if she hadn't used it in a long, long time. You have to help me! Chapter 3 Flint For a moment, Flint did nothing at all. He just stared at the girl in front of him. Her body was almost blue from the chill, but she wasn't shivering. She was absolutely still, like a doll, only her face seemed alive. Turn the key in the pedestal. Three turns to the right and half a turn left. Flint frowned. The girl's voice was hoarse and weak, but there was something strangely magnetic about it, and despite the dangers all around him, he found himself drawn to her words. Please, the girl begged, it will undo the spell. Shaking himself, Flint gathered his rope into his rucksack, slipped off his crampons and dropped down into the hall. He couldn't risk being seen by the tusk guards, but still he said nothing. Who was this girl? Flint's mind raced as he took in her shock of red hair. The tusks were blonde, the furs had brown hair, and the feathers had hair the colour of midnight. This girl didn't fit. But those eyes, big and bright and blue, brought back memories of the tusk spies Flint had seen in the forest last month. And if this girl was a tusk spy, he wasn't getting mixed up with her, not when he had a rescue mission ahead of him. He took a step into the hall and felt Pebble tense inside his hood. The fox pup's ears were trained to sounds most humans missed, and Flint listened hard until he too could make out a faint tapping noise, like metal clanging 
from deeper within the palace. The girl blinked frightened eyes at Flint. Please, she said again, there isn't much time. Despite the pull of her voice, Flint took a few more nervous steps over the ice-crusted floor, past the organ in the middle of the room, below the chandelier spread with candles that burned with bright blue flames, and on towards the silver trees and the doorway leading further into the palace. Somewhere beyond that door was his ma. I know I don't look or sound like much, the girl whispered from behind him, but for some reason... The Ice Queen thinks my voice is important. Flint kept walking, but his ears snagged on those last words, because with every sentence this girl uttered, he could feel himself being folded further into her story. Her voice, whether he liked it or not, did seem to hold some quiet sort of power. I know things from being locked up here in the palace, she went on, and if you set me free, I can help you find whoever you've come for. The girl stifled a sob, and Flint recognised something in her then. Something desperate, despite her stillness. Like the beating fear in the eyes of a wounded animal. And it was harder to keep walking than he had expected. He threw a glance over his shoulder. What's your name? Eska. And your tribe? There were tears standing in Eska's eyes now. I... I don't remember a tribe. The Ice Queen took my memories when she locked me in this music box. Everyone belongs to a tribe. Flint looked her up and down, and the hardness closed back around him. Tusk, probably. We all know the only reason Tusk children roam without fear is because they're the Ice Queen's spies and their parents are her guards. He turned away and concentrated on the hall. It was detours like this, a term his parents had come up with for the distracted, almost sideways nature of his adventures that always got him into such a mess. And these detours were the reason Tomkin had carved the words Decide where you're going and go there on the runners of his sled. The trouble was, Flint realised as he tiptoed over the ice, he usually only discovered where he was going halfway through a journey, and when he arrived he was often somewhere he hadn't intended to be. But this was a journey to bring back his ma, and he wasn't going to let a stranger who didn't even know her tribe get in the way of that. He took a few more steps across the room, mumbling to himself as he went, Stupid Tusk spy. But even as he said the words, he knew they weren't true. This girl was afraid, really afraid, and Flint had done enough hunting to know what fear looked like. What if she really was the Ice Queen's prisoner and knew things Tomkin needed to hear to stage his rebellion? Flint dug his nails into his hands, he could sense there was something more to the girl than what he was seeing. Find Ma first, he murmured. Pebble, though, had other ideas. Wriggling free from Flint's hood, the fox pup dropped down to the ground and ran up to the pedestal. Pebble, Flint hissed, we need to go. But the fox pup was clambering onto the pedestal now, and Flint watched, open-mouthed, as Pebble raised a tentative paw towards Esker. 
Little Animal was usually cautious and untrusting around those he didn't know, and yet with Esker he didn't seem afraid. Flint watched as Pebble rubbed his body against the girl's dress and then licked her ice-cold toes before turning to Flint and making a quiet huffing sound. We don't even know what tribe she's from, Pebble. Even if she's not working for the Ice Queen, she could be dangerous. He glanced across the hall towards the door between the silver trees. Come on! But the fox pup wove between Esker's legs and turned his twitching nose back to Flint. The boy grimaced. Tompkin had reminded him only the day before about harnessing the mind of a warrior, becoming silent, focused and deadly. He cursed under his breath. What he was about to do was not focused, and it was decidedly undeadly. He hurried back to the pedestal and placed a hand on the jet-black key. Esker's eyes glittered, and though her words were faint, she repeated her plea. Three turns to the right, then half a turn left. Flint shot Pebble a withering look. It's your fault if this all goes wrong. Pebble flicked his tail defiantly. Then Flint's mitten closed round the key and he turned it, just the way Esker had said. For a few seconds, there was a grinding sound, like musical notes draining away. Then there was a click as the key finally rotated left. Esker slumped onto the pedestal and for a moment Flint wondered whether he'd killed the girl. A death on top of a detour would be hard to explain to Tomkin. But then, slowly... Shakily, Esker raised her head. She looked at her hands first, turning them this way and that as if she couldn't believe they belonged to her. And then she flexed her toes. Thank you, she gasped. Thank you. But as she struggled to her feet, the whispers began. Flint jerked his head upwards. They were coming from the blue candles flickering in the chandelier. Come to the hall, the candles have spoken. The curse on the child has now been broken. Again and again the flames whispered and Flint's blood curdled. He scooped Pebble up into his hood, then turned to Esker. You didn't tell me the candles were spies! Esker staggered off the pedestal, then fell to her knees under the strain of using muscles so long locked under a spell. She scrabbled for the wall and hauled herself up. I... I didn't know, she stammered, and then her voice grew harder, and she glanced at the arches. We have to leave. Flint's jaw stiffened. I'm here to free my ma, and you're going to show me how I get through this palace to the ice towers, like you promised. Chapter 4. Flint. Esker shook her head. You don't know the Ice Queen like I do. We won't stand a chance now she knows I'm free. Pebble slid further into Flint's hood, as if he could sense that he was largely to blame for this turn of events, while Flint's gaze faltered between the arch he had come through and the door leading on into the heart of Winterfang. He stormed across the hall towards the latter, leaving Esker trembling beside the music box. But as Flint approached the doorway, the silver branches closed over the frame, barring his way on into the palace.
And then footsteps sounded from a passageway beyond the door, heels clacking closer, followed by the slow swish of a gown. The stories of the Ice Queen swirled inside him. She wears a dress made from the frozen tears of her prisoners. She can hex animals under her control with one strike of her staff. She can turn children to ice. Flint thought of the inventions he had packed into his rucksack. His camouflage cape, made from the fur of snow hairs, then washed in a casket of sunbeams, and his bone-handled anything knife with a turquoise river gem slotted into the handle. But these inventions had been made to help Flint slip through the passageways unseen, not to fight the Ice Queen, and with an aching heart, he realised his rescue mission now lay in tatters at his feet. He raced back towards the arches, Panes of black ice were sliding across them, closing the hall in window by window. The palace darkened as the moonlight was shut out, but Flint sped on towards the three arches still left open, and grabbing the key from the music box, Eska stumbled after him. You are not coming with us, Flint cried as he hoisted himself into the biggest arch and hauled the rope from his rucksack. You've already ruined my chances of freeing my ma. The footsteps beyond the hall grew louder and the flames began to hiss. Flint flung his barbed rope into the wall, then glanced towards the tundra. The guards didn't seem to be out there any longer. Perhaps they were inside the palace now, having summoned the Ice Queen about the strange whistle sounding over the ice. And Flint knew that he only had a few seconds to make this escape work. The black ice burst out from the side of the arch and Flint gripped the rope and began to abseil down the palace wall. But Esker wasn't giving up. She clambered onto the arch in the nick of time, her body juddering from the cold, and Flint watched aghast as she grabbed hold of the rope above him as the last of the windows sealed shut behind her. Flint slipped to the ground, barely using his mittens or his boots to grip the rope this time, and moments later, Eska clattered down after him, her hands and feet raw from the rope. Then there was an almighty crash as the largest pane of black glass smashed apart. Flint dragged Eska beneath the bridge. He couldn't leave her now, she'd only give his presence away, and yet his mission was careering sideways. He hauled a bundle of clothes from his rucksack, a pair of sealskin boots and mittens, and a parka and trousers made from grizzly bear furs, and tossed them to Eska. They were for my ma, he growled, but you'll need them if we're going to make it out of this alive. He drew out a large and very soft white blanket next, the camouflage cape. I didn't need this on the way here because no one knew I was coming, but now, thanks to you... He shook his head. We need to run, fast, beneath the cliffs, and if we stay under this cape, we have a chance of making it unseen. Flint jumped as a high-pitched cry pierced the night. Eska! The voice was sharp and shrill, and it swarmed over the driftlands. Flint slid a look up to the palace to see a woman standing in the tallest arch, a crown of snowflakes glinting on her head. His insides clenched. The Ice Queen's teardrop gown fluttered in the wind, and beside the staff she held sat a wolverine, its dark fur a stain against the ice. 
Flint turned to Esker, tucking her beneath the camouflage cape with him. Run, he whispered, now! And with the sound of the tusk guards marching out across the bridge and the Ice Queen's screech echoing across the kingdom, the two children darted out. They kept to the cliffs, their boots pounding against the ice, their breath pent up inside them, and though Esker was unstable on her feet, Flint propped her up and they ran on towards the cavern where the huskies waited. Flint yanked Esker inside the opening in the cliff and the dogs clustered round them, warm and loyal and ready for the homeward journey. Esker leant against the wall. Free from Winterfang, she panted in disbelief. Free at last. The Ice Queen's voice tore across the ice again and Esker edged further inside the cavern. Stand on the metal brake between the runners while I attach the dogs. Flint muttered. I don't want them whisking the sled away before we're ready to go. Esker hurried over and pressed down with her boot, but after the Ice Queen's enchantment, her body was no match for the spirited dogs. The brake flung up, the sled jerked forward, and Esker stumbled over. But Flint was on it in a second, slamming a hand onto the side of the sled until it stopped. Esker picked herself up and wedged a foot down over the metal again as hard as she could, that cape, she whispered, nervously placing her other boot onto the brake to stop it edging forward. We never would have escaped without it. And it was made using magic, wasn't it? That's the reason we got away. For a second, Flint's shoulders squared with pride. It was the first time anyone had congratulated him on an invention, or even been vaguely interested in Erkenwald's magic since the Tusk Chief's death but then he remembered himself and scowled. Shut up and listen to me. He stamped his boot over Esker's so that it sank deep into the snow and the sled held firm. The cavern widens into a tunnel and when it comes up on the tundra we'll be a safe distance away from the palace. The guards might see the huskies, but if we and the sled are tucked under the cape, they'll just look like a pack of wolves running from that distance and with any luck we'll make it to deep roots without being tailed. Esker nodded. We must be quick, though. We need to get as far as we can while the night hides us. Esker nodded again. Then, avoiding Flint's eyes, she whispered, What's deep roots? What's deep roots? Flint scoffed as he untangled the ropes that tied the dogs to his sled. Only the biggest forest in the kingdom and home to the legendary fur tribe. Everyone in Erkenwald knows that. Everyone except me. Esker mumbled. A spot of colour had returned to her cheeks, but the clothes she wore swamped her body, and she looked pitifully frail inside them. Will I be safe with your tribe? Flint looked up. You can't just wander in and join our tribe. There are rules, you know. But, Esker's voice trailed off. I'd be an extra pair of hands about the place. I'd help. It doesn't work like that. Flint said. You have to be one of us from the start. He tossed his rucksack onto the fur-lined sled. Once we're in deep roots, you're on your own. I don't know who you are, what tribe you're from, or why the Ice Queen thinks your voice is so important, but I just missed my chance of freeing my ma because of you. The only reason I'm not leaving you here is because I don't trust you not to blab about my whereabouts to the Ice Queen. Pebble yapped from Flint's hood. 
and because Pebble is playing up. Pebble growled. Flint sighed. And I suppose because you might know things that could help us fight the Ice Queen. Satisfied now, Pebble settled into Flint's hood. Flint shoved Esker off the brake, pushed his own foot down on it, and glowered at the ball of white fur curled up in his hood. I blame you entirely for this detour, Pebble. You're going to have some serious explaining to do when we see Tomkin. Pebble pretended to snore, and Flint rolled his eyes. But when the Wolverine's growl juddered across the sea outside, he pointed to the sled. Sit down on the furs in front. Flint lifted the camouflage cape over his shoulders and hold the end of the cape up a little so that I can see out ahead of us. He paused. But don't expect any conversations. It's hard to steer a sled, be cross and talk all at the same time. Can... Can I just ask your name? Esker stammered. Flint scowled. Why do you need it? Esker blinked. In case we do decide to have more conversations. It's Flint. There was a pause, and we won't be having any more conversations for a while. Esker nodded meekly. Then Flint lifted his foot from the brake, and as the dogs hastened into the tunnel... The wolverine's growl petered out into silence. Chapter 5. Esker They emerged from the tunnel, and when Esker eventually plucked up the courage to peek out from the cape and glance over her shoulder, she saw the dark shapes of the tusk guards spreading out over the driftlands in the opposite direction. Relief rinsed through her, and as she slipped back beneath the blanket, she felt her pulse unwind. With every stride the dogs took, she was moving further and further away from the woman who had held her captive for so long. The wooden sled creaked as it rushed over the ice, and the cold air funneling through the cape stiffened the muscles in Esker's face, but for the first time since being locked inside the Ice Queen's music box, Esker smiled because she had escaped, finally, and the landscape she had watched in silence for so long was now alive all around her. Her heart fluttered at the freedom of it all, and she wiggled her hands in front of her chest. What are you doing? Flint hissed. Esker did a little circle with her elbow. Getting used to my body again. Well, don't, Flint spat. It's distracting. Sit still. Esker stared ahead for a few minutes and tried her best not to be annoying. Then, very quietly, she began tracing her fingers over her arms and legs for a mark from the sky gods that might show she was cursed. But she found nothing, and so she went back to very subtly circling her elbows instead. Snow clouds are gathering, Flint whispered to himself. Our tracks will be covered by morning. Esker stole a look at the night sky, and as she watched the darkness closing in, she tried to work out whether Flint's words were an opening to a conversation or not. She had no reason to trust him. After all, he hadn't planned to rescue her. It had just sort of happened. But without Flint, she'd still be trapped inside Winterfang, and though she didn't want to irritate him, she was longing to talk to someone after so many months of silence. She had to know more about the Fur and Feather Tribe children, 
Where were they hiding? Might they bend their rules and offer her shelter and protection? Could she team up with them to fight back against the Ice Queen? And her deepest desire of all, would they know who she really was? She tucked the music box key into her pocket, hoping that now she had it, the Ice Queen would not be able to use the music box again, for her or anybody else. Tell me about those in hiding from the Ice Queen, Eska said quietly. That sounds dangerously like a conversation to me, Flint replied, urging his dogs on. There were no fences or roads on the Drifflands, at least none that Eska could see beyond the gap in the cape, and the moonlight was almost completely swallowed by the clouds now, but it seemed Flint knew this wide and lonely landscape. Somehow its shapes and rhythms were locked in his skull, and he swerved the sled through a scattering of trees, then down a shallow bank, until it skidded out onto a frozen river coated in snow. Please tell me. Eska whispered, because if you're planning to leave me, I'll need more information than I have now to survive. Why does the Ice Queen think your voice is so important? Flint muttered. It's not like other voices, I'll give you that, but it's feeble all the same, and you don't even know anything. Eska was almost afraid of the answer, of the darkness that the Ice Queen said her voice was capable of, but she had the boy's attention now, and she wanted to keep it. The... Ice Queen is feeding on her prisoners' voices. Eska watched the river race beneath the dog's paws. And if she can swallow every voice in Erkenwald before the midnight sun rises, she'll become immortal and will rule this kingdom forever. Eska heard the squeak of mittens tightening round the wooden bar behind her, but when Flint spoke, his voice betrayed no emotion. What's that got to do with you? Why is your voice any more important than her other prisoners? Eska took a deep breath. The Ice Queen told me that the Sky Gods placed a curse on my voice to make it capable of terrible things. She promised to help me. She said she would take away my cursed voice and use it to summon the outlawed tribes, then tear down the Sky Gods so that they could never harm Erkenwald again. Flint didn't reply and as Eska listened to the near-silent sound of snow pattering against the cape, she wondered what he was thinking. Could he sense the shame in her voice at the idea that she might be cursed? Was he planning to tip her off the sled and leave her for dead because of it? The silence was broken by a snigger. No one believes in the sky gods or their magic anymore. Not after the northern lights stopped and... Eska saw her chance. But you still believe, in their magic at least, she paused. Back at the palace I saw a lot of dark magic, but what if there's another kind of magic out there, one that could be used for good, one that could be harnessed to make secret capes? She bit her lip. Because that's what you did, didn't you? You used magic to outwit the Ice Queen. Flint shifted behind her. I can't remember anything about my past. Eska went on. The Ice Queen stole my memories. But I get feelings about things deep in my gut, and somehow I never believed her when she blamed the gods for the tribes hating each other. I reckon that was her doing. She paused. I think the Sky Gods are still up there, and their magic might be something we can trust after all. 
Although Flint said nothing, Esker could feel his thoughts whirring close to hers. Theirs was a kingdom that had given up on magic, and yet here on this sled were two people who believed in its power, even if one was too proud to admit it. If the Ice Queen lied about the Sky Gods, Esker said, then maybe she lied about my voice too, not about it being important, otherwise she wouldn't have gone to such lengths to steal it. But what if it's not cursed? What if I could use my voice for good? Her words were gathering pace now. I didn't give in to the Ice Queen because I thought that perhaps if I escaped, I could somehow use my voice and a little bit of magic to fight back against her and to free all those prisoners. Flint snorted. I've heard powerful voices before, warrior battle cries and chief speeches, but yours, it's odd and unlikely. There's no way it could destroy the Ice Queen. He paused. And as for using magic... Good luck convincing an entire kingdom that it's something they should believe in again. Eska found herself looking at the camouflage cape. If she knew one thing about magic from her time in Winterfang, it was that it was an unpredictable sort of business that required a good deal of faith to get it going in the first place. Not all brilliant ideas start off ordinary and likely, she said. Flint drove on without speaking, but Esker could sense by his silence that her words had hit home, and she let the quiet linger for a while before pressing Flint in a different direction. I pieced together bits about the kingdom's landscape from eavesdropping on the Tusk Guards, but what about the children in hiding? Tell me about them. Fine. Flint replied after a while, but only because I can't drive the rest of this journey with Pebble biting me on the ear until I've answered your questions. The fox pup leapt down onto the sled and busied himself between Esker's ankles. The Feather Tribe are somewhere in the Nevercliffs, Flint began, though I've not seen them since before the battle last summer. We used to share food around campfires if we crossed paths on hunting trips, and once a feather boy lent me a quiver of arrows when my own was swept down river. But everything changed when the Tusk Chief was murdered. He paused. We don't speak to the Feather Tribe now, and certainly not to the Tusks. Outlaws keep to their own kind. Esker frowned. Then how do you learn new things? We've learnt them already, Flint snapped. But if the feather and fur tribes turn their backs on each other, then you can't swap ideas or make plans together to free the Ice Queen's prisoners. Flint bristled. The fur tribe have made plans, lots of them, just not with the feathers. They can't be trusted. Esker watched the dark speed by. The kingdom she had been longing to explore from the music box was nothing like the place she found herself in now. She had been hoping for friends and answers, but here was discord and secrets. It was a bleaker, colder world than the one she had imagined, and she hugged her coat tighter around her. And your parents? Esker asked. Do you believe they're trapped in the ice towers at Winterfang? Flint's voice seemed tighter suddenly. I know my ma is, because every morning I hear her voice trail out over Erkenwald. But my pa... His words faltered. He was the chief of the Fur Tribe. The best warrior we've ever seen. 
but the Ice Queen used dark magic to fight him, and he died on the ice during the battle last summer. Flint fell silent, and Pebbles scrambled up towards him and pawed at his neck. My brother Tompkin is chief now. Esker nodded. And what will he say when you return without your ma? Flint pulled off the camouflage cape and tossed it onto Esker's lap. The snow-filled night surrounded them, and Esker could make out the dark outlines of trees either side of the river now, and further downstream, a waterfall shrouded in ice. Flint stared straight ahead. He doesn't know I left. And even Esker could tell that the conversation had come to an end then. The dogs ran on and on, and as the hours slipped by, Esker felt her eyes begin to close. A sharp nudge from behind jolted her awake. Keep your eyes open, Flint muttered. Close them in this cold and they'll freeze shut. Esker looked ahead to where the river widened, then turned left. Nestled inside the bend, there was a small wooden hut surrounded by trees, the large trunks it had been made from were shelled with snow, but Esker could make out a door, and Flint guided his dogs onto the riverbank and pulled them to a stop before it. Stand on the break, he ordered Esker, properly this time. She scurried round to the back of the sled while Flint untied the huskies and tethered them inside a small outhouse to the side of the hut. The dogs need a rest he said. It's another few hours to the Fur Tribe hideout, and we're a safe distance from Winterfang now. We'll leave again at first light. Esker squinted through the driving snow. You mean you're taking me to see your tribe? The possibility of being welcomed and looked after by others made her heart flutter. She had been abandoned at Winterfang. No one had come forward to rescue her or even say they knew her. But now there was an opening a chance for friendship. Flint shrugged. I'm taking you to see my brother, briefly. Then I'm leaving you to fend for yourself. Esker's heart sank. This wasn't a promise of safety, after all. But she tried to hide her disappointment. It was a small step in the right direction, and after Winterfang, that counted for everything. She glanced at Flint. You're interested in my voice, aren't you? You think that your brother should know about me? I'm mildly curious, Flint replied. There's a difference, but you'll need to speak to Tomkin first. He's in charge, and if he thinks your voice will help with his battle plans, he'll use it. Esker flinched. Your tribe are going to fight the Ice Queen. Flint held his head high. One day, yes. We're not staying at home like last time when our parents made us promise to hide until they returned. He straightened up. And it'll be Tomkin who leads us. He's the best warrior in the tribe now Pa isn't around. Esker bit her lip. You won't win. I know the Ice Queen. It'll take more than spears and shields to force her back. You don't know Tomkin. If anyone can take on the Ice Queen, it's him. Flint hefted his rucksack onto his back and pulled open the door of the hut. Esker stood shivering by the sled. Is it... Is it safe in there? Flint nodded. It's an old Fur Tribe food store. There are lots of them dotted all over Erkenwald, if you know where to look. He disappeared inside with Pebble, and Esker followed nervously, closing the door against the flurries of snow. It was pitch black within, 
Keep still, Pebble, Flint muttered. I need to find the caribou tallow and the heather so that we can see what's what. Esker squinted into the dark. Can I help? Flint grunted. Esker tried again. Tell me what I'm looking for, at least. First rule of the wild, know how to make fire. You're looking for a stone dish filled with hardened caribou fat, Flint said, and a wick of heather. That's a plant that grows out on the tundra, in case you don't know. Esker felt her way around the wooden walls, nearly tripping over two large wooden objects tucked into the corners of the hut. Then her palms met with a stone dish set between these objects. Here, she cried, I think it's here. Flint fumbled towards her, then stooped to touch the dish. He rummaged in his pocket and drew out two small rocks, and for several minutes the hut was filled with the quiet scuffing of metal. Then sparks appeared and he set them to the heather wick, and within seconds a soft light flickered. The wooden objects Esker had stumbled on were beds laden with blankets made from the furs of snow hares, and Esker looked around to see clumps of moss had been stuffed into the walls to block the cracks in the timber. There was a table beneath the lamp, and above it hooks made from antlers. They sat down on the bed, and Flint turned his anything knife over in his hands. He said nothing, but Esker could tell when he kicked his boot against the bed leg, and Pebble leapt up into his lap, that he was angry at not returning with his ma. She picked at her nails. I'm sorry we couldn't free your ma. Flint didn't look up. One day I'll repay you for rescuing me from the palace, though, Esker added. I doubt that very much. Esker glanced at the knife in Flint's hands. The handle was made of bone, and slotted into the hilt was a blue gem which shimmered mischievously. That knife, she said slowly, it's built using magic again, just like your cape. She leant forward. You're an inventor, aren't you? Flint's face hardened. I'm a warrior, like the rest of my tribe. But the more time Esker spent with Flint, the more she felt that he wasn't like the rest of his tribe at all. From what he had said, the Fur tribe didn't believe in Erkenwald's magic, and yet he clearly did. And while none of them seemed keen to welcome strangers, Flint, despite his reservations, had. To Esker... Flint seemed a strange kind of warrior, and she wondered whether he wasn't the only one who felt like an outsider. Maybe Flint felt different from everyone else, too. But his guard was up, so she offered her next words as a truce. You're a warrior who believes in magic, and I think that's the best way to be, because you won't defeat the Ice Queen with weapons alone. Flint cocked his head. Isn't it time you stopped talking? He stood up and walked over to the corner of the room, where a spear carved from caribou antler had been stashed. Grabbing it, he headed for the door. Get some sleep, he muttered. You look like you need it. And now that the light has returned to the kingdom, you won't get long before dawn is up. Where are you going? Flint opened the door. To get food. And I'm going alone. But Esker didn't roll over and go to sleep. She hurried to the wall facing the river, pulled out a clump of moss and peered through. 
She watched intently as Flint carved a hole in the ice-stuck river with his spear and then sat down beside it, his back against the rush of snow. Esker waited, and though her hands ached from the climb down the palace wall and her throat burned from speaking after so many months of silence, she did not turn away. She needed to learn the ways of the wild, fast, and if there was one thing she was good at, it was watching the world from a distance. Chapter 6 Flint Flint woke to the sunlight streaming through the cracks in the moss and the timber. Normally he would have welcomed the dawn after so many months of darkness, but now it felt like a warning. They didn't have long to halt the Ice Queen's quest for immortality. He swung out of bed and glanced at Esker. She was still asleep, and to Flint's surprise and irritation, he saw that Pebble was curled up in a ball at the bottom of her bed, not his. She's even bothersome in her sleep, Flint thought to himself, scooping the fox pup into his arms and tiptoeing out of the hut. The dogs yapped from the outhouse, and only when Flint pulled back the mound of stones he'd placed over his catch and tossed them a fish to share did they hush. The dwarf willows either side of the river were cloaked in white, but the sky above was a brilliant blue, and as Flint listened, he could hear the soft flump of snow sliding off branches and the pop and crack of river ice melting. Spring was in full swing, and Flint knew that the river was not to be trusted as a way across the driftlands when the temperatures began to climb. He gathered up an armful of branches, tried his best not to think about what Tomkin might say if he declared, when home, that he was a warrior who believed in magic, and laid them out of sight behind the hut. Before long, he had a fire going, and with his anything knife, he pierced chunks of the second salmon he had caught and held them above the flames to cook. Esker shuffled through the snow towards him. You should have woken me up, she whispered. I would have... Got in the way, Flint said. Helped with the fire. Flint shrugged. Quicker on my own. He held out a scoop of bark laden with fish, and Esker shoveled mouthful after mouthful down. Flint raised an eyebrow. You'd think you hadn't eaten in a year. I haven't, Esker replied. Not since the Ice Queen locked me in the music box. It wasn't food or water that kept me alive, just her dark magic. Flint wanted to ask more. Despite what he might have said, magic in all its forms fascinated him. But he was still cross and suspicious of Esker, so he caught himself just before the words slipped out and threw her a death stare instead. Esker was too busy enjoying eating to notice. Last night, I watched you cut a hole in the river ice, then plunge your spear in, she said between bites. Then it looked like you were muttering something, but from inside the hut I couldn't hear anything. What were you saying? Flint looked up. You were watching me. I thought you were asleep. Esker shook her head. I figured watching and listening were probably the best ways to learn about hunting. She paused. I don't imagine I'll be a particularly good hunter. I've not had much experience jamming spears into things, but hopefully I'll pick it up after a while. Her eyes brightened, like I did with the brake on the sled. Flint squinted. 
The only reason the sled hadn't careered off was because he had stamped his boot over Esker's. There was no way she'd have had the strength to hold it on her own. He looked at her gaunt face and straggled hair and the furs that almost swallowed her body. Nothing about the girl was geared up for the wild, and before he could stop himself, he found he was offering her advice. There are rituals attached to hunting, and the tribes always honour them, he said. First, you thank the North Star, the sky god who breathed life into Erkenwald. He stopped suddenly, catching himself. No one thanked the sky gods anymore, but he did. Because despite what he had told Eska earlier, he still believed in the gods. How could he not when he could feel their magic hovering over the kingdom? Flint cleared his throat. He hadn't known this girl long, but it seemed to be annoyingly difficult to steer conversations in the direction he wanted with Eska. Her voice had a habit of drawing surprising and often unfortunate things out of him. He decided to move on quickly. Then you thank the animal itself for giving up its life for you. An animal chooses its own death, you see. It chooses the hunter to whom it will submit. He ran a hand down Pebble's back. There's a bond between animals and tribes out here. Esker breathed a sigh of relief. That's good to know, because if the bonds between the tribes are all broken, you'll probably want the animals to hold things together. Flint narrowed his eyes at Esker. There was a mad sort of logic to her, and he wasn't sure whether he liked it. Before he could reply, though, Pebble slipped from his side, poked his nose under Esker's elbow, and gobbled up the last of her fish. Flint smirked as Pebble waddled back to him and crawled into his lap. You've got to watch your food when Pebble's around. Flint threw a handful of snow on the fire and it fizzled out. His appetite is out of control. Esker followed Flint back towards the hut. How did you and Pebble meet? She asked, hurrying to keep up. Was it on a hunt, and Pebble refused to choose his own death? Maybe he felt he had more eating to do before he submitted to a hunter. There was a snuffle grunt from the ball of white fur tucked inside Flint's hood that sounded quite like a chuckle. Found him in our camp scavenging for food, Flint replied, but he made sure he didn't meet Esker's eyes because that wasn't what had happened at all. Shortly afterwards, they were back on the sled, racing between the dwarf willows and the drifts of snow as they travelled further and further south. Flint shivered as the first notes of the Ice Queen's anthem floated over the land. The choir was ever so slightly louder with each day that passed, and Flint grimaced now he knew why. Had the Ice Queen already stolen his ma's voice, would he ever be able to get it back for her? Flint focused on his sled to stop his thoughts spiralling, keeping the river to his right and watching as Esker's eyes travelled beyond that to the mighty Nevercliffs in the distance, a sprawl of jagged peaks locked in the harsh white glitter of snow. Now and then she gasped and pointed at things, and mostly Flint ignored her, but when her gaze shifted to the trees a few miles ahead, he knew a conversation was inevitable. The trees were not small and straggly like the willow shrubs around them. They were tall and bold, the type of trees you could start climbing at sunrise and only reach the top of when the first stars showed. And as Flint saw them, a smile spread over his face too. Deep roots, he said, the start of it anyway. 
There are spruce trees here, older than Erkenwald's glaciers, with roots that stretch so far into the earth they reach depths even the whales in the oceans know nothing about. Eska gulped. So, where exactly will you take me after we've spoken to your brother? For a second, Flint felt a stab of regret that he planned to leave Eska in the forest. It would be fun showing someone other than his little sister his secret laboratory up in the trees and all the inventions stored in there. But then he remembered his failed rescue mission and the danger of detours, and he banished the thought from his head. I haven't decided yet, he said stiffly. He steered his sled between the willows which had grown denser and taller now the forest was in sight. Then, without warning, the dogs swerved and backed up in their tracks. The sled stopped and Flint peered ahead. What is it? Eska whispered. Flint secured the brake and stepped off the runners, clutching his anything knife in a shaking hand. Then he crept over the snow until he was level with the dogs. There was a scuffling sound from behind a willow and a high-pitched cry that made Eska jump. Flint edged forward and there, huddled under the branches of the tree, was a very large bird. He slipped his knife back into its sheaf. A golden eagle, he said as Eska tiptoed closer. Female, it looks like. They grow much bigger than the males and this one's huge. He nodded to the wire encircling the bird's talon. It was attached to a chain that had been tied round the trunk of the willow. It's got itself trapped in a fox snare. The bird flung its body back from the snare, then flapped its wings against the snow. They were vast, those wings, and flecked with brown, black and gold feathers. But the snare didn't loosen, and after another failed tussle, the eagle jabbed at the wire with its hooked beak. We have to help it, Eska whispered. Flint looked up at Deep Roots. Tomkin would have noticed he was gone by now. He'd be worried. And so would his sister, Blue. Even if we free the eagle, it won't survive. Its talons probably crushed and it'll need it to hunt. Flint tugged at her sleeve. Let's go. But Eska stayed where she was, crouched opposite the eagle, and the girl and the bird stared at each other for several seconds. Flint had seen eagles before, but never this close. Its eyes seemed to burn like desert sand, and there was something in the way it looked at Eska, as if it was seeing things that perhaps he had missed. Shaking himself, Flint turned away, but a few seconds later, the eagle began to hiss and flap. Flint whirled round to see Eska bent over the snare, her mittens laid down on the snow beside her. The eagle's wings thrashed against her back, nearly knocking her over, but she didn't back away. She kept close to the bird, her fingers working at the trap, and for a moment Flint thought how natural Eska looked alongside the eagle. Wild animals were hard to approach, even harder to help, but Eska was right there beside this bird as if, just possibly, she had tended to wild animals before. He strode towards her. What are you doing? Those wings could break your arm! The eagle yanked back, shrieking, but Eska had managed to loosen the loop of wire a little, and in a flurry of snow and feathers, the eagle burst free, tumbling over itself before stilling a few metres from Eska. Go on now, she panted. You're free. 
The eagle blinked at Esker, its golden head cocked to one side. Then it limped behind another tree, trailing its tail feathers out of sight. Esker stood up and looked at Flint. Like you said, there's a bond between animals and people out here. Flint said nothing for a moment, then he dragged Esker back to the sled. Get on, we can't afford any more detours. But although Flint kept his eyes trained on the trees ahead as they raced towards deep roots, he was sharply aware of two things. Esker had shown she had more knowledge of the wild than she realised, and the eagle she had freed was still watching them from back among the willows. Chapter 7. Esker There was a hushed kind of silence inside the forest. Flint's dogs nipped this way and that between the trunks. They knew their path instinctively, and they could tell they were almost home. But as Esker was pulled deeper and deeper into the trees, she bit her lip. This was a place that smelled of secrets, and if she didn't manage to win over Tomkin, she'd be left to find her own way here. She pointed to a line of large, clawed animal tracks leading into the trees. What made those? Grizzly bear, Flint replied. Hesker shuddered. The dogs ran on and on, until eventually the trees grew so close together there was no longer a clear path through. Flint unhitched his sled, then dragged it and his huskies towards a large spruce tree. Hesker frowned. This tree looked just like all the others, but as Flint slid his bear claw earring out and slotted it into a crack in the wood, Esker's eyes grew large. There was a click, then a door swung inwards, and as it did so, Flint's dogs rushed through and Esker watched, open-mouthed, as all seven of them disappeared, their footsteps pattering into silence. She raised a mitten to her mouth. The tree was entirely hollow. You could fit half a dozen people inside it, and there was a lamp burning in a bracket on the far side. Where have they gone? Esker gasped. Flint grinned, and for a moment it seemed to Esker that he had forgotten to be cross with her. He hauled the sled inside the tree, and as Esker peered closer, she saw him hang it on a hook on the inside wall. Have you checked for bears? she whispered. Just get inside, Flint hissed, and he closed the door behind them. Welcome to the labyrinth, he motioned for Esker to stay where she was, then he hurried down some earthen steps and returned a few minutes later. The dogs sleep in kennels down below. They don't much like heights, except Pebble, but the rest of the fur tribe, Flint winked, we go up. Esker wiggled her toes inside her boots. Warmth, safety, and the possibility of friends. Her body tingled at the thought of it all. Flint grabbed hold of the rope ladder hanging down in front of them and placed a boot on the first rung. He climbed a few steps, then glanced back. Don't say we talked about inventions. Or magic, he paused. Or the sky gods. Esker clutched the rope. What shall I say we talked about instead, then, if they ask? Spears. Flint glanced up the ladder. And, um, killing things. 
Esker climbed beneath flint, rung after rung, until she felt sure the tree couldn't possibly go any higher, but on it went, tiny lamps flickering from the wooden walls around them. Esker tried to plan her words as best she could so that Tomkin might listen and understand when he saw her. Then she realised how high up she was and began concentrating extremely hard on Pebble's head, bouncing up and down in Flint's hood to avoid catching sight of the long drop down. She stopped dead. There were whispers coming from above. It sounded like two boys. It's Flint, the first hissed. He's back. A second voice echoed down the tree. Let me see, Lofty, shift over. Ow, Inch, you're standing on my hand. There was a scuffle, then two faces peered over the edge of a wooden platform that ran around the inside of the tree. Esker craned her head to get a better view. The boys' faces were identical. Ruddy cheeks, curly brown hair, matching porcupine quill earrings. Perhaps they were twins. But from what she could see, they had very different physiques. Where one was long and thin, the other was small and plump. Lofty and Inch, Esker mused. It makes sense. Inch squinted towards the ladder. There's someone else with him. There was a pause, then Lofty's voice came hard and low. It's a girl, an outsider by the looks of things. Esker's knuckles whitened round the rope, but she kept on climbing. Then Flint clambered onto the platform, and as Esker followed, panting, the twins backed away from the ladder. The hollow tree closed several metres above their heads, and Esker noticed pieces of bark nailed to the walls, each one bearing carved words. Otter tread, silent claw, lone lynx, spruce wanderer, wild paw. Perhaps the names here belonged to the former fur tribe chiefs and chieftainesses. There was a desk, too, sculpted from wood, with bears, lynx and otters carved into the legs, and a lantern framed by caribou antlers. These were beautiful, homely things, and Esker felt she could have spent ages looking at them had it not been for Lofty and Inch's narrow eyes. The twins hurried behind the desk and sat down on two high-backed chairs. Flint looked at his boots. I'm sorry I asked you to cover for me when I crept out last night, Lofty. Lofty raised an eyebrow. Then he glanced down at his desk. There were about a hundred names carved into its surface in columns, and beside each of the names there was a spruce cone sitting in a hollowed-out scoop. Lofty picked up a cone from a small wicker basket on the desk and plonked it next to Flint's name. In, he muttered, and that's the last time I take the register. Inch coughed, and Flint shifted his gaze towards him. And I'm sorry I made you lie to my sister, Inch, Flint sighed. It was all going so well at first. I sneaked past the guards, stole into the palace, and then... He shot a glance at Esker. The novelty of showing her the labyrinth had clearly worn off. And then she got in the way. Esker felt her cheeks burn. Inch frowned. What is she? A girl, Flint replied. Lofty sighed. I can see that. But what tribe? He looked her up and down. Blue eyes like a tusk. 
but red hair. Esker took a tiny step forward. I'm not a tusk. She felt around for the right words. Even though I lived in Winterfang Palace, I never once spoke to the Ice Queen. I hate her, like you and... Lived at Winterfang Palace? Lofty spluttered. He turned to Flint. I'm used to you breaking rules, but asking outsiders from the palace in for a cup of spruce needle tea? What were you thinking? I wasn't planning on offering her tea. I was planning on taking her to Tomkin. Inch's eyes widened. Because he's going to be really pleased to see a tusk spy. I'm not a tusk spy, Esker cried. Sounds like something a tusk spy would say, Lofty muttered under his breath. Flint drew himself up. Esker's not a spy. She was the Ice Queen's prisoner and she knows things Tompkin needs to hear. Inch sank his head into his hands. This is a disaster. Flint sighed. Come on, let us through. Blue will be worrying about me. At the mention of Flint's sister, Lofty stood up reluctantly and Esker noticed something carved into the wood behind where he had been sitting. The head of an enormous grizzly bear, two small eyes above a snout-like nose and a wide neck surrounded by a circle of large brown claws. The fur was carved in such detail it almost looked alive, and when Lofty flicked one of the claws beside its ear to the left, all the other claws followed suit. There was a clanking noise like gears slotting into place, and the bear's colossal jaw dropped open. Esker blinked. The way on into the labyrinth was through a grizzly bear's mouth. Tompkins in the swingery, Lofty muttered. They all are. Flint took a step towards the open mouth, but Inch leapt up. Wait! We should check her for weapons, for ice blades and axes and spears and... and more ice blades before we let her through. Esker picked at the cuffs of her parka. I didn't come with anything like that. Flint nodded. She's unarmed. And besides, she's not the kind of girl who would know how to wield a weapon anyway. Trust me. Lofty glanced at Inch. Scared of a pathetic little girl. Honestly, I really worry about you with a rebellion coming up. Inch sat down shakily. I've already asked Tompkin if I can be on register duty. Seizing the opportunity, Flint stole through the bear's mouth and Esker followed. They emerged a moment later before a vast network of wooden walkways and rope ladders crisscrossing through the canopy of the trees. Esker gasped. How big was this secret world up among the branches? Dotted around the trunks of the spruces were tree houses, about twenty of them in a large circle. Some were square, some rectangular, others oblong or triangular, but each had a door, little shuttered windows and a chimney on the top. Esker gawped in awe. The forest floor must have been forty metres below, but she couldn't see it. The tree's branches were so dense, and any gaps between them had been filled with walkways and ladders. And as she looked up, she saw that the branches closed over the hideaway, locking it from sight. Even the birds wouldn't know it was here. Flint slid a glance to Esker behind him, and though he said nothing, she could feel his pride. She hastened after him, in towards the centre of this hidden village where the biggest treehouse sat.
The swingery, Flint said as they approached it. This is where we have tribe meetings. It was circular, with a turreted roof made from slats of wood, and as Flint pulled the door open, Esker held her breath. Tompkin would be inside, and if she could just persuade him to listen to her, maybe he'd let her stay after all. Hanging from the roof were lots and lots of swings, some simple boards of wood, others slings made from animal hide and hammocks that could hold several people at once, and the floor was scattered with caribou skins. Dozens of children, all clad in brown furs with brown hair and brown eyes, sat on the swings, their heads turned over their shoulders towards Flint and Esker, as if perhaps just moments before they had been listening to someone at the far end of the room. Esker swallowed. The children were staring at her in silence, and their eyes were cold. At the back of the room, a boy stood up on a large swing hanging from ropes studded with leaves. He flicked a knife up in the air and caught it with one hand. Esker felt her knees wobble. He looked so like Flint, only taller and with a harder jaw. Flint shuffled forward. Hello, Tompkin. And at his words, Esker felt her hopes drain from her chest because Tompkin didn't look pleased to see Flint at all. He looked furious. Chapter 8. Flint Where on earth have you been? Tompkin shouted. Flint winced, but before he could reply, a small tubby girl dropped down from a swing and charged through the ropes towards him, her hair was short and wild about her face, as if she'd cut it herself, in a hurry, without a mirror or even scissors. My brother, you give me happy, she cried, flinging her arms round Flint's waist. Flint reddened, and for a moment he forgot all about the trouble he was in. Instead, he felt Esker's eyes on him, and he wondered whether she could see that Blue was different from everyone else in the tribe that her eyes were smaller and sloping, like almonds, and that her words came out all jumbled, even though she was eight and she should have known better. But when he glanced at Esker, he saw she wasn't frowning. She wasn't raising her eyebrows in disgust either, like some people did when they spoke to Blue. She was just watching carefully, as he'd noticed she often did, without saying anything at all. "'I miss you, brother.' Blue said. Flint ruffled her hair. I'm here now. Blue tickled Pebble beneath his chin. Then she turned to Esker and shot out a little hand. Who you? I'm Blue. Esker blinked. I'm... Her words were cut short by a thump. Tomkin had leapt down from his swing and was striding across the room. He drew himself up before them, a necklace of razor-sharp bear claws splayed round his neck, a large knife hanging from his belt, and Esker found the words drying up in her mouth. Tomkin jabbed a finger in Esker's direction. Who is she? She's not a spy, Tomkin, Flint said quickly. There were murmurs from the swings around them. At least I'm almost certain that she's not. I met her at Winterfang. Tomkin's eyes blazed. Winterfang? Why were you at the Ice Queen's palace? 
I was trying to rescue Ma. Of all the reckless, stupid, irresponsible things you've done, Tompkins spat, this is the worst. Blue clung on to Flint's arm. Be nice, Tompkin. Be nice to brother. But Tompkin didn't even look at his sister. Instead, he narrowed his eyes at Flint. You're still inventing things, aren't you? Even though I told you to stop. No, definitely not, Flint grimaced, knowing how hollow his words sounded. He'd never been a good liar. You made a bunch of stupid objects that you thought could help rescue Ma, Tomkin hissed, but they didn't work. They never work, Flint. When will you learn that magic can't be trusted? Blue put her hands over her ears. You're not an inventor. You're a warrior, like the rest of the fur tribe, or at least you're meant to be. Tomkins shot a glance at Pebble, who was peeping out of Flint's hood. And it's high time you dumped that fox pup back in the wild where it belongs. When we found its mother dead last spring, you were told to drown the pup because it wouldn't survive without her. He shook Flint by the shoulders, and Pebble leapt down from Flint's hood and cowered behind Esker. You're too old for pets now, and you're too old for me to be rushing around deep roots trying to find you. Flint shrunk inside his furs. The whole tribe was listening to what a terrible disappointment he was. Even Esker now knew it, and the shame burned his cheeks. Blue let out a whimper, and Flint stroked her hair. You're upsetting Blue, he said quietly. I'm upsetting Blue, Tomkins spat. You ran away. For a moment, his eyes softened. Imagine if you hadn't come back. Flint reached out to touch the necklace his little sister wore, the one he had made by attaching a rabbit paw to a loop of willow twine. It was a good luck talisman, or so the carvings he'd found in the woods claimed, and Flint hoped that it would keep his sister safe. I'd always come back, Blue, he whispered. Always. Blue wriggled free and poked Tomkin in the stomach. Not nice words. Be friends. Tomkin sighed. We spent months and months building this hideaway, Flint. We can't afford to have the Ice Queen and her spies following your tracks and finding us. Flint shook his head. It snowed last night. Our tracks are covered, until deep roots at least. I wouldn't put us in danger. There were more mumblings from the fur tribe. Then someone called out, What about the girl? Why is she here? We've no room for outsiders. Esker took a small step behind Flint. This is Esker, Flint said to his brother. I don't really know who she is, but she was the Ice Queen's prisoner, and I think she knows things that could help us. There was a long and painful silence. Then Blue turned to Esker, shot out her hand once again and said, I, Blue. Esker took her hand and tried to smile, but one by one the fur tribes stood up on their swings. And that's when the shouting began. Look at her eyes, one girl cried. She's a tusk spy. She's not welcome here, a boy shrieked. She's the Ice Queen's pet. Tell her to leave. We can fight our rebellion without an outsider. Tomkin put up his hand and the voices were quelled. That's enough. I need to speak with my brother alone. 
Flint turned to Esker, then pointed to an empty hammock beside them. Sit there, he said, and don't attempt any conversations. Esker seemed about to say something, but Tomkin was already marching off between the swings, and Flint had to hurry to keep up. The tribe were muttering now, casting fierce looks towards the visitor sitting by the door, but Flint ignored them. He ignored Tomkin whispering to Blade, Tomkin's second-in-command, as they passed too, but as he stooped to enter a small tent made of caribou skins at the far end of the room, he glanced back towards Esker. Blue was chattering away to her, and Pebble was hopping between them. He paused for a second. There was something about this girl, something he couldn't put his finger on. She wasn't strong or impressive, and yet he was starting to believe that there was something special about her voice, something secret and important. He ducked inside the tent to find his brother sitting on a stool. Barely taking a breath, Tompkin launched into his lecture. The fur tribe fight with weapons, not far-fetched ideas, and you need to remember that. Flint wanted to tell Tomkin about how well his Jerfalcon whistle had worked and about how he had so nearly managed to reach their ma. But Tomkin raised a hand before those sentences could unravel, and with a heavy heart, Flint filled his brother in on all that he had seen and heard in Winterfang Palace and about the things Esker had told him of the Ice Queen's plans. What if Esker could help us? Flint said. Tomkin snorted. That runt you dragged in, she'd be of no help to anyone. And a voice, Flint. Even from you, that type of thinking is ridiculous. How could a voice beat the Ice Queen? You've been spun a line by that girl. At least speak to Esker, Flint muttered. He got up to go. Just listen to what she has to say, then you can decide. Tomkin sighed. There's no point, Flint. There might be. With that, he hurried from the tent to go and find Esker, but as he wove through the ropes, he noticed how quiet the room was. The rest of the fur tribe were crouched on their swings, watching him with slitted eyes, and when Flint reached the door, he saw that only Blue and Pebble were on the hammock. Esker was nowhere to be seen. Flint made a dash towards the door, but a bulky boy clad in lynx furs blocked his way. "'Whose side are you on, Flint?' Blade asked. And Flint realised then what had happened, why Tomkin had whispered to Blade on his way to the tent. You made her leave, didn't you? He said quietly, on Tomkin's orders. Blade raised his chin. She didn't belong here. Tomkin's right. We can't trust outsiders at a time like this. Flint chewed his lip. Back at the food store, he had planned to abandon Esker if Tomkins saw no use for her. But then he'd seen her with the eagle, so stubborn and fierce, and something inside him had shifted. There was more to Esker than first met the eye. Yes, she'd messed up his chances of freeing his ma, but did she really deserve to be cast out? And what if her voice really was the key to defeating the Ice Queen? Flint glanced up at the fur tribe, and tried to read their faces, but one by one they turned away so that he was left looking at a sea of backs. And then Tomkin emerged from the tent and made his way through the swings towards his brother. It's time to grow up, Flint, 
We need warriors, not dreamers, to bring the rest of our tribe home. Blue picked up Pebble and stroked his head. Where your friend, Flint? I like friend. Flint felt something tug inside him, but he shook it away, remembering instead the humiliation of being shouted at by Tomkin in front of everyone, and he turned his heart in the direction of his tribe. She wasn't my friend, he muttered. She was a stupid tusk spy. Chapter 9 Eska Eska ran blindly into the twilight, her head full of bears and wolves and cursed anthems. She hadn't wanted to leave the labyrinth, even when Flint disappeared into the tent and she was left alone with the fur tribe and their mutterings. She's cursed by the Ice Queen. She's rotten to the core. But Eska was no match for Blade, and when he seized her by the arm and marched her towards the ladder, she'd had no choice but to follow. Now she kept running. Back in Winterfang, she had always dreamed of escaping and finding the tribes, but the fur people hadn't been what she was expecting, and she felt more alone than ever now. When Blade had grabbed her, she had wanted to call out for Flint, whom she had started to think of as a friend, but she hadn't dared, because she could see the fur tribe were turning against him, and Flint didn't deserve that. Eska stumbled over a log and crashed down into the snow, she lay there for several seconds, her eyes shining with unshed tears. An owl hooted, the darkness grew closer, and Eska forced herself to her feet. She needed to find some kind of shelter before the light vanished completely. Food would have to wait until the morning. The shadow of a lynx flitted between the trees, and every time a branch creaked or a twig snapped, Eska flinched. But she kept going, until eventually she came to a few slats of wood arranged like a wigwam around a tree trunk. It wasn't much, but it was enough to hide her until dawn. And so, gathering up a handful of sticks and moss for a fire, Eska crawled inside. She reached into her pocket and drew out the two splints of metal Inch had stuffed into her palm as Blade pushed her down the ladder, she hadn't looked to see what they were at the time, though she'd had her suspicions, but as she turned them over in her hand now, she felt a lump in her throat. Fire starters. There had been goodness among the fur tribe, but their fear of outsiders was so deep-rooted it meant it wasn't as easy to spot as she had hoped. She struck the metal splints against each other again and again, just as Flint had done back in the food store, but nothing happened. And before long, Eska's fingers felt like rods of ice. Please work, she whimpered. Please, please work. And perhaps somewhere the sky gods were listening, because the flames caught then, and lying on her side in that abandoned shack, Eska watched them flicker until she fell asleep. She woke to the sound of a sleigh skimming over the snow. Stamping out the embers of the fire, Eska waited. The light coming through the slats showed it was dawn already, but something wasn't right. Eska listened for the Ice Queen's anthem, for the voices floating out over the kingdom, but there was nothing, which could mean only one thing. The Ice Queen wasn't in her palace. She was on the move. 
The sound of the sleigh drew closer, and Eska hugged her knees to her chest. It sounded different to the sled that had whisked her away from Winterfang. It was louder against the snow, heavier, and instead of the patter of husky paws rushing through the trees, Eska could hear the pounding of hooves. Her blood froze. Musk oxen. And only one person rode a sleigh drawn by musk oxen. The Ice Queen. Eska's skin chilled. The fur tribe would have brushed away her footprints from the labyrinth the night before, but once a safe distance away from the hideout, they would have left them, which meant the Ice Queen could track her. Eska chewed her lip. She couldn't stay. The Ice Queen had hexed these musk oxen so that they had the strength to run for hours on end. They would find her soon. She had to run fast, as far as she could. She lifted back a slat of wood and darted out of the shack into the dazzling sunlight, half running, half stumbling as she pushed through the trees. Her legs were unsteady beneath her, and after a few seconds, a stitch burned in her side, but she forced herself on, one boot in front of the other. She wasn't going back to Winterfang. Not now. Not ever. Eska scrambled over fallen trees and skidded on patches of ice, but fear made her blunder on. Then she threw a glance over her shoulder. The Ice Queen's silver sleigh was there, fifty metres behind, carving a channel through the trees. The Queen's eyes met Eska's, and she smiled through thin blue lips, her teardrop gown billowing behind her. Two tusk warriors, clad in breastplates of ice armour and holding whips and spears, stood on the sleigh either side of her, and in front, four enormous musk oxen with matted black coats and swooping horns churned up the snow. Stop! In the name of the Ice Queen! the guards roared. Eska dragged her legs on, her heart smashing against her ribcage. She needed the forest to close in, like it had around the labyrinth. Then the Ice Queen's sleigh wouldn't be able to force its way through. But the trees here were growing sparser and smaller, and from behind Eska, a whip lashed and the musk oxen ran faster. Then, to Eska's horror, the trees stopped, just like that, and she burst out into the open. In front of her now were the foothills of mountains, rolling valleys that folded in rivers of melting ice and little copses of trees before eventually climbing up to form the Nevercliffs. The morning sun glittered over the hills, and with a sweeping sense of dread, Eska tried to keep running. But even the slightest incline bit back at her. She didn't have the stamina for the wild, and she knew it. The sleigh raced closer, and Eska whirled round to see the Ice Queen just metres away, standing in front of her cushioned seat, her staff held high in her hands. Eska grimaced and turned to carry on, but the Queen's words wrapped round her like a snare. You ran away, Eska, ungrateful child, after everything I did to keep you safe at Winterfang. Keep me safe! Eska panted as she ploughed up the hill. You held me under a curse. The moment the words left her mouth, Eska realised her mistake. Fear had made her careless. It had caught her off guard. So you can speak, you little wretch. And then the Ice Queen laughed, a bitter laugh that made Eska's skin crawl. She ran on, hardly daring to look behind her. 
Then something hard and cold slammed into her back, and she was flung face first to the ground. Spitting snow and gasping for breath, she looked up. A circle of musk oxen closed in, their heads hung low, their black ice horns glinting in the sunlight. The Ice Queen held up her staff, and the musk oxen stayed where they were, thrashing their horns from side to side. Then she stepped off her sleigh, leaving the tusk guard standing either side of it. I've come to take you home, she cooed, and the musk oxen parted as she stepped into their circle. She stooped and slid five long white fingers round Eska's neck. Eska's pulse drummed at the sight of the red ring on the Ice Queen's thumb. She'd heard Slither say it was filled with frozen blood. Then, quite unexpectedly, there was a scream from one of the guards. The eagle had come out of nowhere, a golden bullet racing through the sky and ripping the guards' spears from their hands. The men grappled in the snow for their weapons, but before they could snatch them up, the eagle turned and plummeted again, raking its talons across the guards' faces. The men fell to the ground, clutching their bloodied skin, while the eagle beat its mighty wings up into the sky once more. Ignoring the guards' cries, the Ice Queen grabbed Eska by the scruff of her neck and dragged her towards the sleigh. She stamped her staff onto the snow and the musk oxen obeyed, gathering in line before the vehicle. But the eagle was careering down again, its body tucked in like a barrel. Eska closed her eyes as the bird plunged towards her. She felt sure that it would never stop. But at the very last moment, it spread out its wings and in one sweeping arc, it dashed the staff from the Ice Queen's hand, splitting it in two with its talons. The musk oxen jerked at the ropes that bound them to the sleigh, suddenly waking from the curse that the staff had held over them, and when their ropes snapped, the Ice Queen's grip on Eska loosened just long enough for her to dart free. She scrambled backwards, hardly noticing that something had slipped from her pocket into the snow, then flung herself into a run. Behind her, the Ice Queen screamed as the musk oxen, no longer under her command, charged off into the forest. Eska ran at the hill, her ears ringing with the eagle's high-pitched cries, and only at the top did she allow herself to glance back. The eagle was nowhere to be seen now, but the Ice Queen was bent over the snow, and with a shrill laugh she picked something up and glared at Eska. "'I will steal your voice by force!' she shrieked. "'When Slither sees what I have here in my hand, there will be no stopping his contraption!' Eska's insides turned as she dug her own hand into her pocket. The key to the music box was no longer there, and while she couldn't possibly know what Slither had created or how the Ice Queen planned to use the key, Eska realised the threat of it all because the Queen was stalking off towards the forest, back to Winterfang, with her guards trailing blindly behind her. She could have battled on against the eagle if the bird had returned, but she hadn't and that fact lay like a cold, dark stone inside Eska. She watched the Ice Queen disappear into the trees, then turned back to the foothills. They rose and fell before her like waves, and Eska wondered how anyone could remember their way through when every hill looked just like the last. She sighed, 
then her eyes fixed on a lone tree a little further down the hill. And there was the eagle, perched on a branch like a sentinel. Esker approached slowly and stopped just a few metres away from the bird. And as she watched the majestic creature, something like a memory, only looser and less defined, stirred inside her. It was a feeling that although she had no obvious place among Erkenwald's people, she might just have a place among its animals. The feeling lingered for a second longer and then vanished, and Esker carried on looking at the eagle. It was the same one she had freed from the snare before deep roots. She could see the wound to its left talon, still red and raw from the trap, but that hadn't stopped it attacking just moments ago. And Flint's words about it struggling to survive with an injured talon seemed almost ridiculous now. But even if Esker hadn't seen that talon, she would have known the eagle by its eyes. Yellow orbs, fierce like the sun. The eagle blinked, then it launched itself off its branch and sailed across the hills until it was nothing more than a speck in the sky, leaving Esker alone once again. Chapter 10 Esker Esker trudged on through the foothills, squinting into the glaring sun. The snow was melting in places with patches of grass, juniper and rocks poking out, and once or twice she jumped as a chunk of snow crunched away from the hillside, then slid down into a hollow. She climbed up onto a ridge. She needed to find shelter, a place to hide should the Ice Queen return, but she was thirsty and hungry and her legs were close to buckling. She picked up a handful of snow and sucked on it, but it tasted stale, like animal sweat, and she spat it back out. Esker looked out at the landscape before her. There wasn't a living soul in any direction, just the curved backs of the foothills. She sighed. This was a vast and silent emptiness that she knew nothing about. She thought of what Flint might do. He moved quickly, thought quickly, and spoke quickly. But Esker did none of those things. She felt tears prick the back of her eyes as she remembered his words to her on the sled. You don't even know anything. And he was right. Flint was part of the wilderness. He understood it. But as Esker gazed upon it, she felt that it could swallow her whole. She sat down on a rock, pulled her hood up against the wind, and closed her eyes. She was an outcast whichever way she turned, and yet there had been that moment with the eagle on the hillside, somehow things had felt, for a fleeting second, almost familiar. Esker's eyes sprang open as a noise, a high-pitched cry, sounded from further across the hills. The cry came again, splitting through the wind, but when Esker threw back her hood, she saw only snow-covered hills. She scrunched up her eyes and scanned the foothills, and it was then she saw the eagle gliding above the ridges, a dark streak against the deep blue sky. Esker watched the bird for a few seconds. Perhaps it was hunting for mice or marmots. Flint had said as much back on his sled. But as she looked on, Esker began to wonder whether that was really what the eagle was doing. 
It didn't dive down to catch any prey, but it didn't sail off into the distance either. It just soared between the hills, back and forth, back and forth, as if maybe it was waiting for something. Esker looked around. Perhaps it was waiting for another eagle. But no more birds appeared, and as the eagle cried again, Esker thought of Flint's words. There's a bond between animals and tribes out here. Her breath fluttered. Was the eagle helping her in return for saving it from the trap? Esker stood up, and because she had no bond with any person or any place, she found herself walking over the hills after the eagle. She was hungry still, and her legs ached more than ever, but something about the bird made her want to follow it, and as Esker crested yet another hill, her heart leapt. Before her lay a valley, and in it was a wide, meandering river folded in on both sides by hills. There was a small forest wrapped round one of the hills to her left, and beyond, where the river narrowed further up the valley into a ravine, she saw the landscape rise into jagged peaks. The start of the Nevercliffs, possibly, where Flint had said the Feather Tribe lay hidden. Maybe they would offer her protection. Maybe they would be more welcoming than the Fur Tribe, and she'd be able to find a way to work with them to defeat the Ice Queen. It wasn't much of a plan, but it was all she had, though if she was going to make the journey to find them, she'd need to learn to hunt and build shelters first. Esker skidded down the hillside, boots slipping on loose stones and snow, until she came to the river. She knelt beside it, cupping hands into the water where the ice had melted, and gulped the liquid down. It was cool and fresh, like drinking the wind, and when the ripples stilled, Esker saw all the red, greens and blues of the rocks on the riverbed. Suddenly, the landscape didn't seem as white and as bare as it had done before. The eagle cried above her again. She had been following it for at least an hour now, and it seemed to do that every time she stopped to catch her breath, and Esker couldn't help feeling or hoping that it was trying to lead her somewhere. She walked on through the valley beside the river, keeping the eagle in her sights as it flew ahead, and just when she felt that she couldn't possibly drag her legs on any further, the eagle landed on a rocky ledge leaning out over the river. Esker blinked. She had been looking up at the eagle for so long that she had missed what had happened to the river. Before her was a waterfall, shielded on either side by crags and rowan trees, only the water itself hadn't melted up here. It was locked in ice still, a great white curtain built of icicles that hung in spiked ropes. Esker thought of the organ in Winterfang. The icicles that formed that instrument had been conjured by dark magic, and every day she had trembled at the sight of them. But though these were just as fierce and splendid, they did not bend to another's power. They were wild, and gazing at them now, Esker wondered whether she had found something as powerful as the Ice Queen. She glanced up at the eagle, expecting it to fly away, but it simply sat, its eyes fixed on the waterfall level with its perch. Esker looked again, at the rocks either side, capped with polished ice, and at the jagged blue tips of the icicles hanging down. It was so quiet, this waterfall, but Esker sensed it was only holding its breath. 
One day soon, as the days stretched out and the melting began, it would roar. And as she was thinking of the rush and pound of water to come, she found herself squinting at the frozen spirals, looking deeper, harder than she had before. She clambered onto the rocks, aware of the eagle watching her every move, and her heart skipped a beat. There was a tiny gap between the icicles in the waterfall, and behind that, Eska could see wood, not rock, as she had expected. She edged still closer, her eyes glued to the ice. Then suddenly, the eagle squawked from its ledge, and Eska looked down. She was only centimetres away from a sheer drop down to the river. Carefully, Eska climbed over the rocks until they spread out into a platform beneath the eagle's perch. The waterfall hung like a veil in front of her, and she noticed the rocky plinth she stood on extended right under it, and that there was an opening in the ice large enough for a person to squeeze through. Eska could no longer see the eagle above her, but she could feel it watching, waiting, so she crept over the stone platform before ducking behind the ice. Her eyes widened. On her left hung the waterfall, a silent shield, but on her right there was a small wooden door built into the rock face. Eska blinked. Did somebody live behind this waterfall, tucked out of sight from the rest of the world? Was it safe for her to stay? She thought of the Ice Queen and Slither brewing curses to snatch her voice. She needed shelter from their dark magic, and this place was about as secret as shelters could come. She stretched out her hand and knocked on the door. Silence. She knocked again, a little louder this time, but still no one answered. And then Eska reached for the handle, a piece of wood carved into a half-moon, and turned it. The door creaked open, and as the light spilled in, a smile spread across Eska's face. Nestled into the rocky chamber in front of her, there was a table laden with wooden bowls and spoons and boxed in by several chairs. There was a stove cut into the rock, too, and beyond that, two beds draped with furs. Eska gasped. Someone had even chiselled a little tunnel into the right-hand side of the rock, and a pane of glass had been fitted at the end. Eska wondered whether she might be able to see the eagle perched on its ledge from there, then her gaze fell to the item leaning against the tunnel wall. The best thing of all, a spear. I can hunt now, Eska murmured. There'll be fish in the river, and probably bears around too. She paused, though I'm not sure I'm quite ready to tackle them. She grinned. This had to be one of the food stores scattered over Erkenwald that Flint had mentioned. Somehow the eagle had led her right to it, and though Eska's mind was spinning with the discovery, she didn't rush inside right away. She crept back to the opening in the ice and looked up at the eagle on its ledge. Thank you, she whispered. Then she looked down at her feet and sighed. She was glad of the hideaway and all that it meant, but she was also sorry that now the eagle had repaid her favour, she might not see it again. Eska's heart was filled with longing for family, friends and a home that she remembered. But a little space inside it had opened up for the eagle, and as she dipped her head before the bird now, she hoped that it understood.
The eagle ruffled its feathers, but it didn't fly away. It just croaked an impatient noise, as if it was eager for Esker to go inside. She smiled. All right, all right, I'm going. She turned back beneath the waterfall, stepping inside the hideaway and closing the door softly behind her. Then she flopped onto one of the beds, shutting her eyes against the sunlight streaming in from under the door. She knew she should take the spear down to the river. It was past midday and she had to eat, but the furs were so soft around her that within minutes she was fast asleep. When Esker woke, the hideaway was dark and cold. She sat up on the bed and her stomach growled. I should have gone fishing while it was light, she muttered, scrambling out of bed and feeling her way down the little tunnel to the window. She pushed the sack curtains aside and a strip of moonlight fell across the hideaway. Esker pressed her face up against the glass and looked out. Please be there, she whispered but the stone ledge the eagle had been perched on was silhouetted against the moonlight, and it was empty. Esker turned away. Of course the bird wasn't there. It had repaid the debt, and now it had left. Those were the ways of the wild. Hunt, Esker said to herself. You need food, then a fire. For a moment her mind wandered towards the next day, and the day after that, what was she doing, really? What was her plan? Find the Feather Tribe where not even the Ice Queen with all her dark magic could root them out. Use her voice to free the prisoners at Winterfang when she didn't even understand its power and she knew the Ice Queen now had plans to steal it from afar. Esker looked around her. Inside the hideaway she felt relatively safe, but she'd have to go out soon to hunt, to get water, and then on to find the Feather Tribe, and she'd be completely and utterly alone. The tasks ahead loomed large, but after a few minutes, Esker shook herself. There's no time for that kind of thinking. I need to work out how to survive out here first. Then I can think about what happens next. She grabbed the spear it had been carved from caribou antler and the end was tipped with a slice of flint bound with animal sinew. Gripping it hard, she opened the door and screamed. There was a dark, round shape just in front of her on the rocks. For a second, Esker was rooted to the ground with fear and then the shape hissed and grew as two large wings flapped open and the eagle hurried to the opening in the waterfall before launching up into the sky. It landed seconds later on its ledge, and Esker breathed out and laughed. You scared me, she said as she crouched in the opening between the rock and the waterfall. And then Esker was silent for a moment as she realised that the eagle wasn't just perched on a slab of stone. There was a large bundle of sticks on that ledge, and the bird was settled inside them. Esker gasped. Those sticks were a nest. This was the eagle's home. I thought you'd gone, Esker said. Most people seem to take off after they've met me. The eagle yapped as if to disagree, then it shifted its weight. Esker watched. The bird was trying to tell her something. She could feel it, but she couldn't read its sounds and signals. 
Then she happened to look behind her at where the eagle had been when she opened the hideaway door, and there, laid out on the rock, was a bird as white as milk. A ptarmigan, Esker breathed. And then she blinked in surprise. The bird's name had come to her just like that, as if she'd always known it. And somehow she knew instinctively that she could use the ptarmigan's feathers to fletch arrows before roasting its meat. Esker stayed very still. Were these memories stirring? Fragments of her past hovering closer? But when several minutes passed and nothing more came to her, Esker picked up the bird and glanced at the eagle. You caught this for me, didn't you? The eagle yapped again, and Esker dipped her head. Hunting for fish could start tomorrow, because now she had food and shelter for the night. She stole back inside the hideaway and lit the stove, and though there was an ice queen set on stealing her voice and a wilderness beyond the waterfall that seemed to shake the night air, Eska smiled. She wasn't alone now. She had an eagle, a friend on her side. Chapter 11 Flint Flint sat in the hammock in his bedroom, watching the long evening light beyond a circular window. A turret leaning out to the side of the treehouse that he, Tomkin and Blue lived in, Flint's bedroom was more of a laboratory, really. Curved walls were lined with wooden cupboards, and inside these were hundreds of bottles, jars, test tubes and funnels filled with bubbling liquids. They were inventions still in progress, and Flint always left the cupboard doors open when he was at home. It was important to keep an eye on his contraptions, just in case they misbehaved. He plucked at the silver strands that made up his hammock. He had spun it from moonlight, the gossamer of rare, almost extinct, Flint suspected, ice spiders, and after several weeks of experimenting and consulting the bark which bore the carvings about Erkenwald's magic... Flint had discovered that the strands guaranteed glorious dreams. He gazed at some of his other creations lining the upper shelves, a football made of caribou hide and stuffed with a knot of wind, which travelled so fast when kicked it was almost impossible for any opponent to stop, a clock that read the weather, not the time. It poured snowflakes, fluttered sunbeams and oozed mist. A wooden chest in which he had trapped a thunderstorm with the result that it let out a loud burp every now and again, and a pinch of stardust, and, if unleashed at precisely midnight, the chest rained silver coins for a month. He sighed. There were lamps lit by sunbeams and rolls of string made from coils of mist, but everything remained locked inside this turret, usually behind closed cupboard doors so that Tomkin didn't fly off the handle when he saw the invention still very much existed. Flint swayed back and forth in his hammock and wondered whether it was only magic that Tomkin distrusted. It felt a little as if it might be him, too. What wrong, Flint? came a little voice from among the cushions on the floor. The cushions were snow clouds dusted with sunbeams that Flint had invented for comfort and warmth, and Blue was a huge fan. She hurled one at Flint, but mist and several jars toppled off a shelf. Shh, 
Flint whispered, leaping out of his hammock to check that none of the jars had cracked. He placed them back where they belonged. Tomkins having a meeting in the kitchen with Blade, and, I've told you before, you're only allowed to come in and see my inventions if you keep very, very quiet. Blue giggled as Pebble chewed on a cushion. It had been half an hour at least since his last meal, and the fox pup was already feeling peckish. Blue lifted Pebble into her lap as Flint flopped back into his hammock. You sad, Flint. I know you sad. Flint turned a magnifying glass over in his hand. It was infused with rainbow essence and could pick up footprints in the snow long after they had vanished from the naked eye. He'd used it earlier that day, reassuring Tomkin that it was the only one of his inventions that still existed and that it was an invaluable gadget when tracking animals for the tribe. But a small and very guarded part of him had been using it for another reason. To track Esker's footprints, because no matter how hard he tried to stamp her out of his head, he couldn't. He thought back to their conversations on the sled... Esker's ideas had been wild and full of cracks, but Flint knew the power of wild ideas. And despite what he had said to her, the line between angry and interested had been blurring. What if Esker had been right? What if Tomkin needed more than just spears and shields to stage a successful rebellion? But how could he convince a whole tribe to trust in magic again on the word of a strange girl? Flint shifted in his hammock, He'd allowed Esker to be driven out into the wild where he was sure she wouldn't survive. And though he'd found her tracks earlier that afternoon, there was now a curfew at the labyrinth following his unsuccessful mission to Winterfang the day before, and Blade had called Flint back before he could follow them for long. So for all he knew, Esker might be dead already. Flint swallowed. Outsider or not, she hadn't deserved this. Blue settled the fox cub on her brother's chest, then wrapped her arms round them both. Hug for you. Flint smiled. Better? Blue asked as she drew back. Better, Flint replied, ruffling her hair. Always better after a blue hug. There was a knock at the door, a quick, no-nonsense rap. Flint leapt up from his hammock and smacked a hand down on a wooden button on the wall. The cupboard doors closed, immediately hiding all his inventions from sight. Then he shoved the cushions into a trunk, grabbed a spear and a polishing cloth, and turned the key in the door. Tomkins stood before him. Yes? Flint asked, rubbing the cloth over the tip of his spear. Lofty's saying he found the tracks of a sleigh pulled by musk oxen in the forest, Tomkin muttered. Immediately, Flint thought of Esker, there was no way she would have escaped if the Ice Queen had found her. Blade thinks the Ice Queen was here looking for the girl you took from Winterfang. Blue cocked her head. Esker! I like Esker! Tomkin gave her a stern look. No, Blue, you don't. She and your brother have got us into a mess. Blue frowned. Everyone okay? Yes. Tomkin avoided her eyes, but that's not the point. Blue skipped from the room and Tomkin turned to Flint. We need to be careful when hunting. If the Ice Queen found Esker in Deep Roots, she'll assume one of the tribes helped her and are hiding nearby. 
There's no sign of the Ice Queen now, but you can bet she'll send her tusk guards back to the forest to search the area. He paused. So I'm telling everyone to select hunting grounds wisely and keep watch at all times. Flint nodded. It was an effort to keep his mind on his tribe and hunting when he knew for certain now that Eska was at the mercy of the Ice Queen. Any sign of the girl? he asked as casually as he could. No, Tomkin replied. Lofty turned back at the sight of the sleigh marks. Flint scrubbed his spear harder, as if somehow that might undo the guilt he felt inside. He was a part of the fur tribe, but Esker's words had made him question his place here. Why, when he tried so hard to harness the mind of a fur tribe warrior, did he end up feeling more and more like an inventor? And why, when the Feather Tribe might know important things like how best to fight the Ice Queen, did his tribe insist on cutting themselves off? Flint couldn't help feeling that he was as much of an outsider in the labyrinth as Esker had been. I've doubled the hours on weapon-making and added another fighting session before breakfast, Tompkins said. We'll need to be ready for the rebellion soon, and this time we won't lose. With that, he left the room, and Flint slumped onto his hammock. He'd been wary of detours after so many failed missions, but he couldn't help feeling that Esko was a detour he should have pursued, regardless of where it might have led him. Chapter 12 Esker Esker crouched on a stone in the middle of the river, squinting against the glare of the morning sun. She didn't like being out in the open, especially because, until just a few moments before, the valley had been ringing with the Ice Queen's anthem, and Esker kept imagining tusk guards sent to drag her back to Winterfang, cresting the summits of the surrounding hills. But none came, and she needed to prove to herself that on her first morning here she could find food. The water rushed around her, clear and sparkling, and she hoped full of fish, because she couldn't let the eagle do all her hunting. That would be rude. And who knew how long it planned to stay? Maybe it had other nests. Esker focused on the water, her spear hovering just centimetres from the surface. There was a cry from somewhere above her, the eagle's call, and so long as the bird was with her, she didn't feel afraid. Minutes passed, and just as Esker was beginning to think perhaps there weren't any salmon swimming in the river, a shot of silver scales flashed beneath the surface. She launched her weapon, but in her excitement, it wasn't just the spear she thrust forward. Her whole body went crashing into the icy water too. Quickly she emerged, eyes and mouth wide with shock, and scrambled up onto the bank. The eagle had now landed and stood just a few metres away, and though Esker wasn't sure whether birds could look unimpressed, she felt that this one did. She scowled at it. I suppose you'd have known better. The eagle glanced at the hideaway, then back to the river, and Esker didn't need to speak eagle to understand what that meant. Get dry, come back, try again. A short while later, Esker emerged from her hideaway, dry and warm, but it was nearing midday now and she still hadn't caught a fish. She walked along the bank, and just as she was getting ready to jump onto the rock in the middle of the river, the eagle squawked. 
Eska followed its gaze towards the sun, and realisation slowly dawned. My shadow, she murmured. It'll scare the fish. She wandered a little further downstream until she reached a point where the bank was low and the ice had melted from the edge. She knelt down in the snow and waited, and a few metres away, the eagle waited too. After several minutes, though, Eska grew stiff and she shook out her legs and changed position. The eagle hissed and Eska went back to waiting. When ten minutes passed and still no fish emerged, Eska thumped her spear down in the snow. It's no good. But the bird didn't move. It stayed exactly where it was, its feathers tucked into place, its eyes locked on the river. Eska sat despondently beside the bird, the seconds drifting into minutes, and she began to notice the silence around her. The whole valley was cloaked in quietness, but the longer she waited and listened, the more the silence spoke. Water murmured, river ice groaned, a ptarmigan's wings whirred and a weasel scampered up a tree. She had somehow overlooked all this before, and Eska wondered then whether there was more to being a hunter than being big and strong. Perhaps it was just as important to be still, to listen keenly, and to see into the heart of the things that most people missed. It took over an hour to catch her first fish, but when Eska lifted the salmon out of the river on her spear, her face glowed with pride. I did it, she laughed. I actually did it. The eagle ruffled its feathers, and Eska found herself wishing that Flint had been there to see this too. She tried to remember the ritual he'd told her about. Thank you, North Star, she whispered, holding the fish up in her hands and glancing at the sky. Wherever you are up there, and thank you, little fish, for choosing to submit your life to me. She paused. She felt there should be more somehow, it was especially kind of you, because I was getting really cold and a little bit uncomfortable sitting out here on the snow, so you came along at just the right moment. Thank you very much, and I hope... The eagle hissed, so Eska decided perhaps it was time to wrap up the ritual. That I have honoured the bond between animals and tribes, even though I'm not strictly in a tribe yet. She gutted the fish, as she'd seen Flint do, and with the eagle flying above her, she walked back to the hideaway. Eska was surprised to see the bird swoop into the opening behind the ice and watch her from the platform as she cooked the fish on her stove. But she didn't shut the door or pretend the eagle wasn't there. Instead, she talked as she cooked, feeling glad of the bird's silent presence. "'If you're going to stick around,' Eska said, I'll need a name for you. The eagle yapped, and Eska suddenly wondered whether it was annoyed. Not because you're a pet, she added quickly. More because you're here, and I'm here, and... She wanted to blurt out that she was lonely, that she was scared to go to sleep because her heart ached even in her dreams, but instead she concentrated on turning the fish. It would be nice to know your name. The eagle yapped again, and Eska thought she might have misread the sound before, because now that she listened, she could hear the softness at its core. It should sound wild, this name. Eska cut the fish in half, the kind of word the wind might use if it could speak. 
she looked up, because you're like the wind, you know, fast and free and fierce. She thought about the eagle showing her the hideaway and teaching her to fish. You're kinder than the wind, though. She edged forward and placed half of the fish on the rock outside her hideaway. The eagle stayed where it was, and it was only when Esker looked away and began to eat her own portion that the bird tucked into its share. As they ate, Esker glanced at the eagle now and again. The wound from the snare was healing already, and as the minutes drew on, Esker felt something familiar stir inside her. The bird was proud and strong, but it was also protective, of her at least, and its character felt like a trait she'd once known. A memory flickered, then slipped from Esker's grasp. But a word remained, a name that was unmistakably female, and that to Esker really did sound like the language of the wind. Balapan, she whispered. And at the name... The eagle looked up and turned round, as if it had been waiting for Esker to say that word from the very first moment they met. Chapter 13 Esker Esker could have stayed inside her hideaway for the rest of the day quite happily, but it turned out Balapan was bossy as well as protective, and the eagle had yapped outside her door until Esker snatched up her spear and made her way out into the valley again. Ears pricked for the sound of a sleigh, Esker trudged up the tallest of the hills after the eagle. She paused halfway up, her face shining with sweat, and watched as the eagle soared above her. Balapan's eyes didn't roam the hillside aimlessly as Esker's did. They darted about from one part of the valley to the next, and as Esker looked harder, deeper, she saw the landscape as the eagle did, the herd of caribou denting the horizon on the other side of the valley, the ghost-like shape of a snow hare darting up a hill, and the footprints of wolves, lemmings and marmots scoring the snow around them. Esker carried on walking, and watching, and in the hour that followed she found a discarded caribou antler that she realised could serve as a bow to accompany the quiverful of arrows she'd spotted in the hideaway. And she flushed a snow hare from its burrow, which Balapan pounced upon, and Esker decided she would use the animal to make mittens that fitted, the fur for gloves and the sinew for thread. The wild was still vast and unknowable, but Esker was learning how to carve out her small place in it, and though this small place thronged with animals instead of people, Esker discovered quite unexpectedly that she was starting to feel a part of it, that she was less alone than she had thought. She sat on a large rock and thanked the North Star and the Snow Hare's spirit for a successful hunt. Then she turned to face Balapan, who was perched beside her. We make a good team, you and me. The eagle looked at Esker long and hard, and in those bright yellow eyes, Eska saw something precious, something she had almost given up on. The Ice Queen despised her. The Fur Tribe had driven her out. But this eagle was telling her she mattered. Eska listened to the rush of river water echoing through the valley. I don't belong to a tribe. I don't really know where I fit in exactly. But if my tribe ends up just being you and me, Balapan... That would be enough. 
The eagle shuffled nearer until she was so close Eska could see the vein of each golden feather. Then she watched, hardly daring to breathe, as Balapan leant against her. The eagle felt warm and strong, and at its touch a deep-buried chord inside Eska's heart thrummed, because to know the closeness of another in a wilderness was to belong, even at the very edge of things. But when Balapan flinched, Eska knew something wasn't right. Scooping the hare into the game bag she had found in the hideaway, Eska crept after the eagle as it flapped to the uppermost ridge of the hill. The eagle crouched below the skyline with just her head poking over, and Eska did the same. At first, Eska saw only the towering peaks of the ice-capped Nevercliffs in the distance, but when she brought her gaze closer, down into the neighbouring valley, her stomach lurched. A sleigh, much bigger and much, much faster than the one she had seen before in Deep Roots, was speeding between the hills. They were too far away to hear anything, but Eska watched, rooted to the spot in fear, as six more musk oxen pulled the Ice Queen, flanked by a dozen tusk guards in glistening armour, closer and closer towards the north of the valley. Eska's mind whirled. Was there a path from the neighbouring valley to hers? Could a sleigh pass through the ravine above the frozen waterfall? She tore down the hillside, wincing as she stumbled on a loose stone and her ankle gave way beneath her. She forced herself up and, limping through the pain, carried on down the hill before weaving between the rowan trees by the river and clambering over the rocks leading down to the waterfall. Balapan slipped into her nest, a lookout should anything happen, and with her ankle throbbing and her heart hammering, Eska squeezed through the opening in the ice and closed the hideaway door behind her. Trying to ignore the burn in her leg, she waited, crouched in the tunnel before the window, her eyes wide with fear. She had drawn the sack curtains across the pane that morning, but through the narrowest of cracks, Eska looked out now. There was nothing for a long time, and as the light began to fade, Eska wondered whether perhaps the Ice Queen had failed to find a way through the valley and had given up and gone back to Winterfang. But then, out of nowhere, the sound of a sleigh from the north... The Ice Queen was coming. Eska drew back from the window, pinning herself against the tunnel wall. She listened as the sleigh pulled to a halt somewhere nearby, and the grunts of the cursed musk oxen rumbled into the twilight. Eska's heart thumped at the clink of the tusk ice armour, but she kept absolutely still. Then the Ice Queen's voice came loud and sharp, and so close, Eska could almost feel the words slipping down her spine. I summon you foothills under my hold. Take the girl and the boy into your fold. Eska's breath caught in her throat. The girl and the boy. Did the Ice Queen mean flint? Had her candles whispered of his presence in Winterfang? And had Eska put him in danger even without the fur tribe taking her in? The Ice Queen's voice dropped as she addressed her guards. The hills will only remain under my command until the midnight sun rises in eleven days' time. I must achieve immortality before then, so I can extend my power over every living thing in Erkenwald forever. Hills, rivers, forests, lakes...
she paused, and once I've swallowed the voices of the fur and feather tribes, I will kill every single one of them so that you, my tusks, can share in the glory of an Urkenwald ruled by dark magic. There were murmurs of excitement from the guards. Then the Ice Queen added, but if I fail to steal these voices in time, I will vanish with the midnight sun and all those touched by my magic, my prisoners, Eska's memories, and my tusk tribe will perish alongside me. The guards were suddenly quiet, and the Ice Queen went on. I must ride back to Winterfang. Slither's contraption is complete, and I want to see if it does what he says it is capable of. But you will stay and search deep roots. I want that forest patrolled. A boy from the fur tribe helped Eska escape, and he must be taught a lesson. The girl needs to be isolated and helpless if I am to take her voice before she learns about the power of the Sky Song. At the mention of the Sky Song, Eska risked a glance through the window. The Ice Queen was standing on a rock overhanging the river, her fingers wrapped round a staff of glistening black crystal. It was taller and thicker than her previous scepter, and at the sight of it, Eska withdrew. The Ice Queen thumped her staff against the rock, and the muskoxen lashed their horns against the nearby branches. Moments later, Eska heard the lurch of a sleigh, and then finally, there was silence once again. She peered out of the window to see the silhouette of the eagle standing up in the nest on the ledge. Eska breathed a sigh of relief, but as she thought of the hills boxing in the valley, dark and tall and bidden to the Ice Queen's commands, she shivered. What was this mysterious sky song the Queen spoke of? Did it have something to do with her voice? She reached a hand up to her throat, suddenly frightened by what might lie inside it, then she shook herself and lit a lamp. Eleven days. That's what the Ice Queen had said. Just eleven days until the midnight sun and the Queen took power over the whole kingdom. Eska gulped. Even if the Ice Queen failed to achieve immortality in that time, the consequences would be disastrous. The prisoners at Winterfang would die, and her memories, every single recollection of her past, would be lost forever. Eska's heart was racing now. There was no more time to prepare. She needed to press on into the Nevercliffs as soon as possible to find the Feather Tribe in the hope that they could help her. But her ankle was pounding, and as she eased off her boot, Eska saw that it was purple and swollen. She cursed under her breath. It would be a few days before the sprain healed enough for the journey onward. Eska looked at her reflection in the metal of a dagger she had found in the hideaway. A girl stared back at her. But despite the sunken cheeks and straggled hair, this girl's eyes were hard. The Ice Queen said she wanted Eska isolated and helpless, but that wasn't going to happen. Because she wasn't the timid little prisoner she had been, locked inside the music box at Winterfang. She was out in the wild now, with a golden eagle by her side, and for the first time since leaving the palace, Eska dared to hope that the sum of all that might be enough against an ice queen with the power to conjure whole valleys to do her bidding.
Chapter 14 Esker During the days that followed, Esker bound her ankle with caribou hide and filled every waking hour, learning how to face the wild head-on so that she was ready for the Nevercliffs when the time came. She took care of her shadow when fishing. She learnt to spot camouflage snow hairs by the flicker of their eyelids. She got her hunting ritual down to just a few words. She tracked snow buntings and geese to see where in the snow they plucked the mountain cranberries from, and with each hour that passed, she grew to understand Balapan more. She knew which yap meant yes and which meant no, she could tell the difference between a hiss and a squawk and a cry from the clouds that could only come from an animal that knew it was free. What she didn't understand, though, was her voice. How every morning since the Ice Queen's visit, her throat felt tighter and sorer than the day before, and a strange iciness seemed to linger on her tongue. At first she had put it down to fear, but as the days bled on and each morning her throat became increasingly painful and the cold in her mouth grew sharper, Esker felt sure the music box key and Slither's contraption were behind things. Was the Ice Queen inching closer and closer to stealing her voice? On the sixth morning after the Ice Queen's visit to the valley, the morning Esker planned to leave for the Nevercliffs now that her ankle had healed, she woke to an almighty crash. She sat bolt upright in her bed and reached for the dagger under her pillow. The anthem from Winterfang was drifting through the valley, but Esker listened beyond that. There was another noise, a roaring, churning, raging sound, and it was coming from just outside the hideaway. Esker leapt out of bed, clasping her knife tight, and strained her ears towards the door. She recognised that roar. It was water, gallons of it, pouring down the valley. She edged towards the window and pulled the sacking back. Balapan was still there, tucked up in her nest, because she could tell, without even opening her eyes, which were the noises to be frightened of. And this ear-splitting roar was nothing to do with the Ice Queen. This was the wild talking. Esker threw on her furs, then opened the door to her hideout. The frozen fall was no longer there. Instead, a torrent of water burst over the ledge above her, cascading through the sunlight in a glittering curtain. Esker pushed her hair back from her eyes and peered through the water. She could see the whole valley, snowy hills spliced into slithers by the waterfall, and she knew that, although her ankle was strong enough for the journey onward now, and with the midnight sun only five days away, she needed to press on, she would miss these hills. They'd come to feel a bit like home. She cast her eyes towards the largest hill, the one whose snow still clung in knee-deep layers, and blinked. She could have sworn she saw something dark moving across it. She squinted harder. These shapes weren't moving like animals. They were moving unmistakably like humans. Esker swung her quiver over her shoulder, then crouched in the opening between the rock face and the waterfall. Balapan's eyes were fixed on the hillside. Whoever it was out there, the eagle had seen them too. For a while, Esker just watched, but when two figures swung into clear view round the middle of the hill, she frowned. 
They were a long way away, but even from this distance, Eska could see they weren't especially tall, and they weren't clad in ice armour either. Members of the Fur Tribe, she whispered. Eska watched the figures slogging through the snow. Then she listened to the Ice Queen's anthem and thought of the command the Queen had given to her guards. Were the Fur Tribe still safe now that Tusk Guards patrolled the forest? She knew she shouldn't care. This was a tribe that had cast her out. But somehow she did, despite what had happened. She glanced up at Balapan. Come on, let's take a closer look. I need to know that Flint and his tribe are safe. Eska strode off. The eagle didn't follow, but the pull of other people drew the girl away from the waterfall. She kept to the rowan trees at first, and when out in the open, she darted between rocks and ridges. She couldn't risk being seen, just in case the figures were in fact tusk guards. But when she reached the foot of the largest hill and squatted down behind the boulders at its base, the remains of a long-ago landslide, Eska heard Balapan cry. High-pitched, drawn out, it was a warning. Eska scoured the hillside for the figures and saw them halfway up, two dots against the snow. The Ice Queen's anthem drifted away. Then there was a loud grinding sound, and before Eska could even cry out, an enormous chunk of snow broke free from the summit and began sliding down the hill. The figures ran, but although they were nimble and fast, they couldn't outpace what was coming, because this was no ordinary avalanche. This was a hillside under the Ice Queen's control, and for some reason it had waited until now to attack. The snow swallowed everything in its path, and as it surged down the hill, it seemed to gather itself up into a roaring mass of white. Eska's mouth dropped open. The avalanche was full of faces built from the snow itself, horns and fangs and bulbous noses, hooded eyes, pointed ears and gaping mouths, and they leered forward, spreading jagged wings as the snow roared around them. Realising that the avalanche was now only metres away from the figures below, Eska leapt up onto the boulders, her instinct to help overcoming her fear of who these people might actually be. Move to the side, not down! She yelled, you can't outrun this. But her voice felt sticky in her throat, as if the words were only just struggling out. She darted round the side of the hill and threw her arms up in the air. Over here, she cried, over here. The figures swerved towards Eska, but the avalanche was moving faster now, and with a hideous roar, the faces in the snow swallowed the figures and continued to tear down the hillside. Without thinking, Eska rushed towards the pulsing wall of snow. She could hear voices screaming from inside the avalanche, then something small was tossed up into the mist. It landed by Eska's boots and she snatched it up. It was a necklace made from willow twine, and for a second Eska paused, as if half remembering something, but there was no time to think. If she didn't yank the victims free, they'd suffocate or be dashed to their deaths on the boulders at the bottom of the hill. She charged on up the mountain, ignoring the spray of ice on her face and the cries of the golden eagles circling above. Then she flung her bow to the ground, and as the avalanche reared above her, she fixed her eyes on the figures tossing and turning at its edge and charged into its throes. For a second, 
the world turned white, but Eska knew she had to act before the snow spun her upside down, so she reached out, grabbed hold of an arm, and as the snow raged around her, she yanked hard, and just a split second before she lost her footing completely, she burst free from the avalanche. She pulled back from the figure and gasped. She was face to face with Flint. And suddenly she realised who the willow twine necklace belonged to. Blue, Eska murmured as she watched the avalanche storm towards the boulders at the bottom of the hill. Flint blinked at Eska in disbelief and Pebble did the same from his parka hood. Then he scrambled to his feet after his little sister. But the eagle had beaten him to it and he watched open-mouthed as the bird dug its talons into Blue's shoulders. The snow faces snarled and hissed, and one or two flung jagged wings towards Blue, but Balapan had her now. She wasn't letting go, and as the avalanche raged on, the eagle dragged Blue from its sway. Eska watched the writhing snow smash into the boulders at the bottom of the hill, and as it spilled out into the river and was carried from the valley, she thought about the Ice Queen's enchantment. I summon you foothills under my hold, Take the girl and the boy into your fold. The hill had waited until both she and Flint were in the valley so that it could ensnare them both at once. Flint tore down the hill towards Blue, who was lying to the side of the boulders, but Balapan rushed towards Eska, and this time the eagle didn't land beside her. She swooped onto the girl's shoulder, and as Eska stood on the snow-strewn hillside, she felt the bird's talons wrap round her bones, and she wondered then about her past, about whether she'd ever been held this tight. Chapter 15 Flint Flint knelt by his sister and wrapped his arms around her. It's okay, Blue, it's okay. Pebble crawled out of his hood and licked Blue's cheek. I've got you now. Blue's bottom lip was trembling. Snow alive, Flint. It angry. Why the snow angry? Flint brushed the ice crystals from her furs. It's gone now, Blue. We're safe. It's all right. And then he turned to face Esker. She was there on the hillside still, just a few metres above them, but this was not the feeble girl he had helped escape Winterfang. This girl was different. Her stance was tough, her red hair was braided with feathers and plaits, and on her shoulder there perched a golden eagle. It was the same one Flint had seen trapped in the snare before deep roots. He could see the scar on its left talon. But what on earth was it doing with Esker? And how had she survived in the wild for so long? He scooped up Pebble and stumbled to his feet, but on seeing Esker, Blue pushed past him. Esker! she cried, clapping her hands. My friend, I miss you! Balapan launched herself into the sky, unsure what to make of the bundle of fur charging towards her, but Blue wasn't phased. She flung her arms round Eska and squeezed her tight. Eska blushed. Hello, Blue. The little girl drew back. Flint looking for you in forest. Flint plucked a clump of ice from Pebble's fur, Quiet, Blue. She scrunched up her nose. Flint looking for you, Eska. 
at night when Tomkin's sleeping, and a day on hunt, always looking with his magic glass. Flint was suddenly glad that his magnifying glass was tucked away in his rucksack and not out in his palm, searching for Esker's tracks, as it had been only a few hours before. We came out to the foothills to hunt ptarmigan, actually. The tusk guards are patrolling the forest now, and we can't access our usual hunting spots. Blue smiled. We came to find you, Esker. Flint forget. Flint scowled at his sister. We strayed a little further than previous hunts this morning to, um, find the best ptarmigan. But we didn't expect to stumble into the Ice Queen's enchantments. He looked around the valley. So you've found another tribe to take you in, then? Esker glanced at Balapan, wheeling above them. The bird was wary of the visitors, but she could tell that these ones meant no harm. Yes. Flint frowned. The Feather Tribe in the Nevercliffs. No. Esker picked up her quiver and slung it over her shoulder. It's just me and Balapan. The eagle cried above them, carving its circles in the bright blue sky. Flint shook his head. You survived out here in the wild, without a tribe. I've got a tribe, Esker replied. It's just not very big yet. But who taught you to hunt? How did you find shelter? Esker shrugged. Balapan. Then she added, the golden eagle. But... Flint's words trailed away. She showed me the hideaway, then she taught me to hunt, Esker explained. Fish first, down by the river, then hares up in the burrows on the ridges. Ptarmigan, too, once I'd bent the caribou antler into a bow, strung it with sinew and fletched my arrows. The words spilled out, toppling over each other in their strangely magnetic way, as Esker negotiated her first proper conversation since leaving Deep Roots. And all the while, Flint listened, his jaw open. We get along pretty well, Balaban and me, so long as I remember to wash up my dishes after hunts. But I suppose washing up is to be expected in tribes. It's not exactly fun, though, is it? She paused. Sorry, I forgot you don't much like talking. Flint was too shocked to speak, but Blue simply rolled her eyes. Keep up, Flint. Esker, good hunter, she grinned. Let's eat Esker food. There was a growl of approval from Flint's arms. Pebble-hungry, too. And Flint was surprised to see that Esker didn't flinch at Blue's demands, or even seemed to hold a grudge about what the fur tribe had done to her when she'd asked to be welcomed in. She simply handed Blue the necklace she'd found in the snow and nodded towards the river. This way to the hideaway, she said. Flint was quiet as they walked, and while Blue chattered away to Esker, he glanced up at the eagle soaring over the valley. It didn't seem to be following them exactly, but he could tell that it was watching their every move. Flint knew about the bonds between animals and tribes during hunts. He'd learnt all about that from his pa, but no one had ever spoken of an animal teaching a person the ways of the wild. And yet somehow Balapan had helped keep the girl alive against all the odds. He walked on in silence, but when Esker led them behind the waterfall to the wooden door built into the rock, Flint couldn't hide his astonishment. Y you, you found the giant's beard, 
he stammered. The waterfall that freezes all through winter and hides Erkenwald's most secret food store. Esker pulled the door open. Well, technically, Balapan found it. The eagle settled into its nest on the ledge outside, and Blue patted Esker's back. This amazing, Esker! Flint stepped inside, and his eyes travelled over the beds, table and chairs, and the little pieces of the wild Esker had collected, red quartz from the riverbed on the windowsill, pine needles scattered over the floor, and snowy owl feathers twisted round the base of a lamp. It really is, Flint murmured as he closed the door, and then he realised what he'd said and reached for some new words. Snargoyles. That's what we ran into back on the hill. Esker lit the stove while the others took a seat. Snargoyles? So that's what happens when the Ice Queen calls the hills to obey her. Flint nodded. Snow hexed by dark magic does strange things. Lofty said he saw snargoyles in this valley shortly after the battle last year, and none of us came back after that. He paused. Until we decided to hunt here today, of course. Without bows or arrows, Esker said, avoiding his eyes. Flint shifted in his seat. He couldn't help feeling he was losing control of the conversation, something that often seemed to happen with Esker. He sank into silence as Esker reached for the plucked ptarmigan. She threw one, still raw, to Pebble, who squealed with delight, and then she knelt by the fire as the meat cooked. The silence dragged on, and Flint's eyes widened as Esker plated up the meat and handed the food around. Thank you, he said after a while, for the ptarmigan and for helping us out with the snargoyles. I don't know what would have happened if you and Balapan hadn't shown up. Just keeping a promise, Esker said quietly. Flint thought back to her words on his sled. One day I'll repay you for rescuing me. They were words that he had scoffed at, and yet Esker had kept to them. Because of her courage and loyalty, he and his sister were still alive, and on realising that, something inside Flint thawed. This was a girl he and his tribe had vastly misjudged. He took a deep breath. I think maybe I was wrong about you, Esker. Esker smiled then, a wide smile that reached her ears, and Flint found himself wondering whether birthplace, parentage and appearance were really the things that you should list people under. Somehow, courage and loyalty seemed like better markers. Esker launched into all that had happened since leaving the labyrinth, being chased on to the foothills by the Ice Queen's sleigh, Balapan saving her, the Queen's plans to curse Erkenwald and wipe out the fur and feather tribes, and the mysterious mention of the Sky Song. Flint tried to imagine his beloved forest cursed by the Ice Queen's power, trees rotted through, lynx hexed to obey her, the labyrinth destroyed and his whole tribe gone. His heart trembled at the thought. After a while, Blue got up to play with Pebble, but Flint and Esker kept talking through the day, and though he said nothing, Flint couldn't help noticing the change in Esker's voice. Her body was sturdier, even the way she moved was more decisive, but her voice, although still strangely captivating, was undoubtedly weaker. 
Once or twice she tried to clear her throat, as if she could tell there was something wrong and was embarrassed by that fact, but it didn't sound like a tickle or a cough to Flint. Esker leant back in her chair and sighed. I still don't know who I am, or why my voice is important, or what this sky song is, or even how I'm going to stay hidden from the Ice Queen. I don't think people stop evil by staying hidden. Flint looked through the window at the afternoon shadows cast by the rowan trees. I think they stop it by standing out. Esker pulled her hair back from her face and wound it into a plait. But the midnight sun rises in five days. How? Flint gasped and Esker spun round. What? Am I doing the conversation wrong again? Look back at the window for a second. Flint murmured. Then he leant forward and peered at her neck. You have a birthmark just below your hairline. Oh, Esker replied. Is that good or bad? Flint grinned. It's big, the size of my fist, and the pattern is so clear I could have drawn it on. It's the little bear, the constellation of the sky gods. Esker's face paled. The Ice Queen told me that I bore the mark of the gods, that it was the proof that I was cursed. I didn't know what she meant until now. Flint shook his head. You're not cursed, Esker. But how do you know? I've got the mark to prove it. Flint shook his head. Because since we met, you've got me thinking. Two whole armies of warriors weren't enough to defeat the Ice Queen last summer, and Tomkin's rebellion will be no different, no matter how many extra training sessions he organises. He paused. I know that Erkenwald's magic can be used for good. His face reddened at the words, kept secret for so long. And I think your birthmark is a sign that your voice is the key to defeating the Ice Queen. At the mention of her voice, Esker winced, and Flint couldn't help feeling that she was holding a secret back. She grabbed her spear. Raise your knife, too, so that I've got a mirror behind me. I want to see the birthmark. Flint did as she asked, and as Esker looked at the constellation stamped on her skin, she swallowed. I was planning to leave for the Nevercliffs today to seek out the Feather Tribe, but then the Snargoyles attacked. She gripped her spear. It's too late to go on now, but I need to set off at first light tomorrow, because time is running out. The Feather Tribe might know something about my past or the Sky Song, and to defeat the Ice Queen, I'm going to need to know more than I do now. Flint nodded. Then he was silent for a few minutes. He knew he should be getting back to Tomkin. This was exactly the sort of detour his brother was always warning him about. But Flint's gut was telling him to go on with Esker. He thought of his ma trapped in Winterfang, and Erkenwald emptied of the fur and feather tribes, and its rivers, mountains and oceans cursed by the Ice Queen. What if, by journeying to the Nevercliffs with Esker, he could prevent all that? What if he could stage a rescue mission that worked not only for his ma, but for all the other prisoners too? A mission that would make Tomkin proud of him for once. But there was Blue, currently dangling titbits of food before Pebble, who jumped up and gobbled them down. He couldn't leave her here. She didn't have the coordination to hunt on her own, or the strength to spend nights in the wilderness with no one by her side. But he couldn't tell her to go back to Deep Roots, 
She wouldn't find her way without his help, and going back to the labyrinth with her would mean risking the tusk guards and Tomkin's rules. But to come with him if he went on with Esker, she wouldn't keep up in the Nevercliffs. She wouldn't be able to cope with the dangers around them. I want to come with you, Esker, Flint said quietly. And Esker nodded as if perhaps she could read him a little better than he thought. But Blue... Flint whispered. She'd be slower than us, and she wouldn't understand things. Esker watched Blue rolling on the bed with Pebble. We'll look after her, she said. You, me, and Balapan. Flint bit his lip. It's a big thing looking after her. Bigger than you think. Esker nodded. I know, but that's what tribes do. Flint was taken aback by her words. Not many people had the patience for Blue, and fewer still the understanding. But somehow Esker, an outsider he knew next to nothing about, seemed to have both. And her acceptance stirred something deep inside Flint's heart. Esker looked around the hideaway. We'll leave at first light, after... Blue hurried to the window. Something there she said, frowning. Something in the trees. Esker looked over Blue's shoulder. Balapan's still in her nest, Blue. It's okay. She'd let us know if there was anything to worry about. Blue shook her head. Something there. I saw it. Big shape. Flint drew Blue back to the table. Come on, Blue. It was probably just... A shiver rippled through Flint because there were footsteps crunching through the snow outside, accompanied by a low, husky breathing. Someone, or something, was approaching the giant's beard. Esker grabbed her spear with one hand and blew with the other, then Flint edged forward on silent feet before lowering an eye to a small crack in the door. His stomach tilted. White fur, an eye as black as coal, Erkenbear, he whispered, his voice laced with dread. Chapter 16 Esker Esker ground her words out over her fear. We can take it, all of us, together, if we... There was a knock at the door and Flint leapt backwards. Erkenbears don't knock. The knocking came again, an urgent pounding against the wood. Esker swallowed. This one does. Open up! The voice on the other side of the door was a throaty growl. I'm a friend! Esker slid a glance to Flint. You're absolutely positive it was a bear? Yes! Flint spluttered. I saw it! There was a loud thud and the door swung open, clattering back against the hideaway wall. An enormous Erkenbear reared before them, its coat shining silver in the early evening light, its mouth a gaping maw of daggered teeth. And suddenly, a new scent hung in the air, one of ice and snow and, very faintly, blood. Blue crawled beneath the table with Pebble, but Flint and Esker stood side by side, their weapons raised. Esker tried to think as Balapan had taught her. Calmly, boldly, she brandished her spear. 
come any closer and we'll... we'll stick these in you. And then a strange thing happened. The bear's head flopped back and a man's face appeared beneath it, a long white beard tipped with ice and skin as gnarled as washed-up timber. Esker peered closer. This was an old man wearing an Erkenbear pelt. But, Flint blinked, you were a bear outside. I know you were, the way you moved and growled. What an extraordinary thing to say, the old man murmured. My pelt must have confused you. But as he spoke, his breath puffed out into a mist of ice, and behind it, Esker could have sworn she saw him wink. Flint rubbed his eyes. And now... But there are no grown-ups left out here. The Ice Queen took them all to Winterfang after the battle. The old man brushed the snow from his furs. She didn't take me. Esker watched the man carefully. His eyes gleamed like drops of polished night. His beard was as white as his furs, and his large, weathered hands could easily have passed for paws. She had seen the Urken bears out on the ice while locked in Winterfang Palace and watched the skull-crushing blows they could wield. She had heard their grunts and roars, too, and as the old man spoke, Esker thought she heard something of that wildness in his voice. Blue poked her head out from beneath the table, what happening, Flint? I scared. Flint narrowed his eyes at the old man. Who are you? And how do we know we can trust you? Because of your eagle, the man replied. It saw me approach, but it didn't seek to warn you. Esker stiffened. How do you know that eagle's got anything to do with us? I'm closer to the wild beasts than you might think. The old man smiled, and Esker saw a gentleness in his midnight eyes. He bent down so that he could see under the table. I mean no harm, little ones. You can come out if you want. Blue scooped Pebble into her arms, but stayed where she was. You feed Pebble. He hungry. A again. The old man drew a pouch out of a pocket in his furs. Inside were cubes of frozen meat, and he placed several before Pebble's paws. The fox pup waddled out of Blue's lap, sniffed the meat, and then munched hard before letting out a small burp. Blue grinned. I, Blue. Boy is Flint, best brother in the world, and girl is Esker, she my friend. The old man straightened up. I'm glad to have found you all, for I have things to say that you must hear. Esker half-turned so that she could whisper to Flint. We need all the help we can get before he set off for the Nevercliffs, and he's right that Balapan would have warned me if there was dark magic in the air. I think we trust him, for now. Flint nodded to the old man. Take a seat, but if you try anything, remember Esker wasn't lying. We'll stick the spears in you. They gathered round the table, and though it was an old man that sat in a chair opposite them, Esker couldn't help feeling as if she was in the presence of an Erkenbear, and that made her sit up straight and listen hard. The visitor leant forward and his pelt shimmered. My name is Whitefur, though many know me as the ever-wandering one. Flint turned his knife over in his hands. 
Which tribe do you belong to? The old man raised an eyebrow. No tribe that you would know of, boy. Flint frowned. Everyone belongs to a tribe. Fur, feather, tusk. That's how it works. He glanced at Esker. I think. Whitefur shook his head. Belonging is not about knowing your tribe. It's about trusting people, whatever their tribe. He paused. There are many ways to belong. Esker's cheeks reddened because, although Whitefur had directed his reply at Flint, something about his words tiptoed close to her heart. I walk with the wild, Whitefur said, with urchin bears and snowy owls, with wolves and drifting caribou. That's my tribe. He looked at Esker. And I know who you are, child. Esker's pulse thumped. You're like me, a wanderer, someone with an unbreakable bond to the wild. Wanderer. Esker turned the word over in her head. You don't slot into a tribe, perhaps, but you fit in with the wild. You're part of it. Just look at the bond you share with that eagle. He paused. There are only a handful of us scattered across the land now, and when the Ice Queen took you, we feared the worst. Esker leant forward, hungry for the truth. Took me from where? From your mother and father. Whitefur looked down. They were wanderers too. Esker's heart fluttered as the pieces of her past gathered closer. Wanderers hear and see things others miss. Whitefur went on, and we knew from the way the whale sang and the wind blew that night last spring that the Tusk Shaman, under the influence of the Ice Queen, killed the Tusk Chief. But when your father visited the Fur and Feather tribes and tried to explain the truth, they wouldn't believe him. He tried to tell them that the only way to defeat the Ice Queen would be to fight back using Erkenwald's magic but mistrust and suspicion had already started working their way into people's hearts and minds, and before long, the bonds between the tribes and the people's belief in Erkenwald's magic had crumbled. When the day of the battle came, the wanderers fought alongside the fur and feather tribes, but we were small in number and unable to conjure enough magic to force the Ice Queen back. Esker bit her lip. My parents fought in the battle. Whitefur nodded. And you did too. You've been wielding bows and arrows since you were tiny, and no matter how many times your parents tried to persuade you to stay hidden that day, they couldn't keep you from their side. You were adamant that you wanted to fight. He looked down and was silent for a few moments. Your mother was killed out on the ice by a wolverine bewitched by the Ice Queen. The old man's eyes softened. She loved you, Esker, with a fierce kind of love that could rattle mountains. Esker felt the room sway. She had had a mother, one who'd loved her, but knowing that had come too late. Beneath the table, two little arms wrapped round her legs. Blue couldn't really understand what was going on, but she could sense Esker's sadness, and she held on tight. Whitefur sighed. Blackfina, she was called, and she was as much a part of the sea around Erkenwold as the whales that glide through its waves. 
She understood the underwater songs of orcas and narwhals, and she swam down into the depths with the seals. Esker tried to take it all in, and when she closed her eyes, she saw a woman standing on the clifftop above the ocean. Her long red hair streamed out in the wind, and above her, a flurry of kittiwakes cried. The memory slipped from her grasp, and Esker's heart surged with longing. Esker's father, Flint said quietly, is he alive? The old man nodded. Wolftooth still lives. Esker slumped back in her chair because there it was, hope, the knowledge that she had a person out there to call her own. Flint glanced at Esker. We need to find him. But Whitefur shook his head. He's a prisoner in Winterfang Palace. Esker gasped. Her father had been so close to her, all those lonely days and nights in the music box, and yet she had never known... What happened? Esker asked. Why did I end up alone in that music box? Because of your voice and all the possibilities inside it. From the moment you were born and we saw the mark of the sky gods on your neck, we wanderers knew you were special. In the days when the sky gods still danced at night, we used to hear them singing too, and they sang of a child with a voice so powerful it could save Erkenwald if darkness came. Flint turned to Esker. See, he said softly, you were never cursed. You were marked to stand out. Esker felt the weight of Flint's and Whitefur's words. For a long time she had hoped she might be able to use her voice for good instead of evil, but now she could feel the Ice Queen stealing it from afar, and if Flint and Whitefur knew that, maybe they'd give up believing in her and she'd be all alone again. Esker shifted in her seat. The thought of her voice being more powerful than the Ice Queen's staff and anthem and endless dark magic seemed to be growing horribly unlikely. Whitefur went on. The Ice Queen, a fallen star from the Little Bear constellation, was jealous of you from the very start, Esker, and she and her shaman had the deadliest tusk warrior and a pack of wolverines seek you out at the battle. The wolverines wrenched your mother away from you, and when your father realised he had lost Blackfina, he held you close to him and tried to fight on. But the tusk warrior was fighting with dark magic on his side, and I remember watching, powerless to help, as he dragged you and your father to the palace. Whitefur met Esker's eyes. The queen threw your father into the ice towers, and you were shut away in her music box. Later, we wanderers heard your father's voice singing in her choir, but not yours, and we assumed you had been killed. Until a few days ago, when in the dead of night your eagle found me while I was hunting on the Driftlands. It flew round and round until I realised it was flying in the same pattern each time it circled, the shape of the Sky God's constellation, and I knew it was a sign that you might still be alive. I watched the direction the eagle flew off in, then I followed, and when I arrived in this valley a few days later, I remembered the giant's beard, one of Wolftooth's favourite food stores. Esker brushed a hand against the table leg. Had her pa sat at this very table? Had he slept in the bed she lay down in each night? 
The possibilities tingled inside her. Then she thought of her ma dying to protect her in the battle at Winterfang, and a lump lodged in her throat. I never asked for any of this, she said quietly, for a voice so dangerous and terrible it got my ma killed and my pa locked up. White fur ran a hand through his beard, and little specks of ice floated to the ground. Dangerous, perhaps. Terrible, no. You have a gift, Esker. Your voice has the power to do great things if you use it wisely. But my voice is getting weaker, Esker blurted out. She looked down. Whitefur deserved to know the truth. He was helping her find a way back to her past. And so did Flint. Esker realised that now, despite what it might mean for her. Every morning... When I hear the Ice Queen's anthem, I feel something cold inside my mouth, like icy fingers trying to reach down my throat and pluck at my words. White fur growled, and beneath the table, pebbles scurried behind blue. Esker went on nervously. When I escaped from Winterfang, I took the key from the music box with me, but out in the foothills, the Ice Queen snatched it back. She paused. It's cursed, and I know that she planned to give it to her shaman, Slither, so that he could finish a contraption designed to steal my voice. Esker sniffed. At the moment, the Ice Queen can only weaken my voice, but it won't be long before she finds a way to take it completely. Esker waited for the disappointment that was bound to follow. But where that could have been, she found loyalty instead. Then we have less time than I thought, Whitefur replied. We must act quickly. Esker glanced at Flint. Knowing that the Ice Queen has found a way to steal your voice doesn't change things, he said. We're still in with a chance, however small, of saving Erkenwald. But how can my voice hold back an Ice Queen, a terrifying shaman, and an army of tusk guards when it's growing weaker by the day, Esker cried. Whitefur's eyes glittered. A voice is a mighty thing, Esker. When everything is taken from you, your family, your home, your friends, your dignity, you still have a voice, however weak it sounds. The light from the lamp on the table made shadows flicker on the rocky walls as night folded round the hideaway. And your voice has the power to silence the tribes, command animals, and shake the skies, if you can prove that you are the rightful owner of the Sky Song. But we don't even know what it is, Esker whispered. Whitefur smiled. Many years ago, the North Star blew the legendary Frosthorn to breathe life into Erkenwald, and the Sky Song was the tune the Sky God played on that horn. It was a tune infused with the very greatest magic, and the gods meant for you, the child chosen by them, to find it one day and to sing it so that hope might come to Erkenwald when darkness closed in. He sighed. But the Ice Queen wants your voice so that she can use it for a very different tune, one full of dark magic that will call the fur and feather tribes in, then tear down the sky gods. 
Flint took a deep breath, and Eska realised that he, too, was struggling to understand now. How do we find the Sky Song if it's just a melody? How? asked Blue from under the table, though the word didn't carry any understanding. It was just an echo, a reminder that she wanted to be heard, too. The gods used to sing of Eska's quest. Whitefur drew himself up, and as he looked at Eska, his words came deep and growled. You must find the forgotten Frosthorn and blow it from the stars before the Ice Queen steals your voice. Only then can you unleash the Sky Song and bring hope back to Erkenwald. <laughs>